Steve and Kevin dive deep on Magic 30th Anniversary Edition on episode 108 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 108 of So Many Insane Plays, our deep dive into the Magic 30th Anniversary Edition product announcement. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Uh, it's good to be with you. This one's going to be a doozy. Indeed. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or themanadrain.com. announcements this episode are uh, a mixed bag see we've got some old and some new (laughs) the eternal weekend is the old part there's been some some buzz on twitter justin Gennari in particular had tweeted something a little bit vague which is represents i think second or third hand news saying he had heard there was going to be an eternal weekend this year in the calendar year (laughs) and it's mid-october at this time Um, of this recording (laughs) (laughs) we still have no announcement yeah it seems it seems impossible, is what I would say. Extremely and unlikely, I, have, I would say. Not impossible, yeah. but yeah. I, and who knows? I mean, this event is kind of famous for late announcements in the past, but never this late, right? Unless it's a, a New Year's Eve party. Right. You know? Uh, we'll see. We'll try to keep our audience informed, but no actual news there. The other interesting topic that we don't, this, this show is not dedicated to, but we want to be sure to touch on, is the recent ban and restricted update on October 10th. And the news is no news for Vintage. There were changes in Standard and others, but in Vintage, there were no changes, which is what I would have expected. But we did get a little bit of a summary, a blurb from Wizards about the state of the format. Yeah, from Ian Duke, like we usually do. And I do think it's fun to... No, we don't usually get this. That's why this is news. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't usually synopsize data analysis on the format. That's irregular, I think. Sorry, you're right. I misspoke. I was thinking about when we get changes, we get these kind of things. But you're right. It is not normal to get commentary on the state of vintage, which is why we should read it. Uh, Do you think we should read the whole thing in its entirety, Steve? Okay. It's not very long. Likewise, this is at the end of the announcement, so it starts with likewise. Likewise, we think vintage is in a relatively good spot. Magic Online data shows greater archetype diversity recently than we've had in some past cycles, in part because of new card additions to the format. Displacer Kitten and Vodalian Hexcatcher are examples that feature prominently in their respective decks. Other new cards like Boseju Who Endures are finding a home in a variety of decks. We're aware that many of the current top decks make powerful use of Tinker and are often categorized together. But within that category, there's a good amount of diversity in terms of how those decks can be built and the play patterns they follow. We're also seeing healthy amounts of quote-unquote good stuff decks, Vengevine variants, and Workshop variants in the metagame. Overall, we think Vintage is in a good place right now and don't anticipate the need for changes soon. Your reaction, Steve? Well, I look, for the vast majority <laughs> of the, the 30 years in which, well, let's say 29 and 28 and a half years, that the formats have been regulated by the DC and then the DCI through banned and restricted list policy levers, it has been extremely rare that the regulators kind of reveal their hand 
In other words, that <laughs> they usually will just say, we're making a, an intervention, a regulatory decision, and then they'll have some extremely brief explanation that's either based on principle or data. So for example, the, like they would restrict tutors and they'll say, this is a tutor and therefore we're, we're restricting it, right? Or this is a, a, a fast mana accelerant and therefore we're restricting it. Or they would say, mm-hmm. this card is appearing in a disproportionate number of decks, therefore we're restricting it. It's very unusual that we get any kind of qualitative commentary, um, especially in a moment where they decide not to do anything. <laughs> so Ian Duke has, I think, is part of his, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, tenure at the helm of the DCI or, or whatever the unit is that now that now runs this. <laughs> he has had a tendency to do this on a number of occasions in the last, I don't know, five or so years, where he will occasionally trot out some data and make reference to data that they accumulate through Magic Online. And he, if you read the full announcement, he does the same thing for Legacy and others. I think mm-hmm. what's unusual about this is that he is specifically calling out cards, not just the standard regulatory criteria of diversity in terms of archetypes, decks, and play patterns. And then he also names out specific archetypes, right? Like workshop variants, Vengevine. That's very interesting. That he kind of he kind of creates an implicit grouping of he calls it good stuff, which I assume means it's sort of like blue and restricted cards, then Vengevine and workshops. But what I think is most unusual here is the specific calling out of three cards that are relatively new to the format. Displacer, Kitten, Vildalian, Hexcatcher, and Bazeju, who endures all, uh, and who endures. Though that is extremely unusual. I've never seen that before, to the best of my memory. The naming of mm-hmm. new cards, as in, in especially in a trio, <laughs> as contributing to new decks. What do you make of that? Well, I can't. I can't really add much to that. Uh, you're totally right. The observations are similar to some things we've talked about in the past in terms of metagame diversity, uh, the allusion to win rates, that kind of thing. But you're totally right. Calling out a card that is from a recent set like Displacer Kitten, for example, and saying that they're observing where it fits in the format. Examples, they said the phrases feature prominently in their respective decks. (laughs) That's that's kind of a slippery statement, isn't it? Right? Like, you could say that Goblin Charbelcher features prominently in its respective deck, yes. but that's not telling you anything about the nature of not the at format all. at all. Yes. <laughs> so, and I and the notion of Vidalian Hexcatcher being a, a call out here seems especially odd to me because I'm I haven't done the numbers, but that card is not a noteworthy. <laughs> yeah, that is just not a noteworthy. I don't even remember. Right did now. we review it? <laughs> Was it? <laughs> I don't think we did. <laughs> okay. I don't think we did. Um, so. There are some interesting choices here, but I, in the in general, though, I am grateful for this content. Yes. Like, we can be critical of it, and we yes. have been and will continue to be, but I'm grateful for it I, still, I, because I, I like the fact that they're observing these things and sharing exactly. with Exactly. I think it's just very... Un- I think, honestly, Ian Duke is probably the best at this job of anyone that we've ever seen do this job, in the sense that he strikes an interesting and I think useful balance of transparency, logic, tight and taut reasoning, and information. And balancing those things are very difficult because it's very easy to be overly informative. And if you share too much information, then you could be hemming yourself in the future. You'd be sort of like talking about, you know, if you say, you know, we're looking at A, B, C, and D, 
and then you make a decision two years later and you don't look at A, B, C, and D, but you look at X, Y, and Z, then someone's going to say, well, why aren't you looking at those criteria now, right? And so it's very difficult. It's a very difficult job. But I think that Ian has done just in the observation, I mean, I've studied, (laughs) studied is the right word here, Mm -hmm. not just read, but studied a number (laughs) of his announcements closely. And I think he just does an incredibly good job. And I just think this is a really interesting <laughs> two-paragraph blurb here. I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to belabor it, but I think it's it's good to know that vintage is in a healthy spot. It's also good to know that they're looking to see how new cards are being incorporated, right? And not just in the format writ large, but also in in whatever that you know, in particular specialized uses in the way that he describes. But so it is true. Like there's a contrast actually in the the second two sentences of the first paragraph, right? So. In the first two cases of Displacer Kitten and Vidali and Hexcatcher, he's saying that they are featuring in their respective decks, meaning that they are tailored to and used by specific decks. And then the contrast to Bizeju is that it finds homes in a variety of decks, meaning that it's sort of a general utility card. That in itself is interesting. But I think it does suggest that it's not just, they're not just looking at, the implicit point is that it's not just about archetype diversity and play patterns, etc., but they also want to make sure that Vintage is contemporary in the sense that they are making cards or for it, or that cards made for other formats are migrating into vintage. And that, I think, is a a sign of a healthy format as well. He doesn't explicitly say that, but that's the implication of of that, in my opinion. I think you're right. I do think that the citation of these two examples has a, a troubling aspect to it in that it seems woefully out of touch. (laughs) <laughs> to, to to cite Vidalian Which is the Hexcatcher. danger I was, doing, uh, I was alluding to, right? Uh, like of over-informed. Yeah, I, I was doing a little bit of validation as you were speaking a minute ago. There is one 5-0 league deck for Vidalian Hexcatcher in Magic Goldfish's results. One. I don't know exactly what would cause Ian to arrive at that as an example. Maybe some, I was going to say convoluted, that sounds insulting. Maybe some specific but maybe not comprehensive search criteria for recent yes. card usage that just that just showed this on a list yes. and he didn't like consider it more critically and just said oh that's a recent card and it got a 50 that's neat like um, there could be a raft of like 3 and 2 merfolk decks though we just don't know you know that, that's a good point and i was going to get to that too which is that maybe there's some more data behind the scenes that we don't get exposed to we know there is such data but maybe it's showing different patterns to him in that level Overall, I just want to comment, too, that I agree with the decision to not restrict anything. I think that maybe goes without saying, but I should say it. The other flip side of that, though, is I think we're um, verging on a point of the format maintenance being overly conservative from a BNR standpoint. A couple of people that I follow on Twitter, for example, tweeted out um, lists, and I do mean lists of cards that could be unrestricted. Oh, unrestricted. I was going to say conservative in the sense of of not being aggressive enough in dealing with I don't know. No, I was. I meant the other way around. I meant if you go long enough without making any changes, that suggests that you're not being aggressive enough, is what I would argue. <laughs> now, I would not uh, accuse a limit to that. Ian Duke of being passive in that regard. I mean, I think his tenure has had almost a record number, record number of unrestrictions, if I'm not mistaken. What? That's true, but the longer a tenure goes, the longer that becomes diluted, yeah. right? How long has it been since we had one? Uh, I would need to... I could, I could open up my history of vintage and tell you my history of the vintage pen restricted list, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you agree that there are unrestrictable cards on the list, right? And have been for a while. We, you and I have been having this conversation for a while about the, how unrestrictable say library is or something like jar, right? Like 
we've debated these things and there are there are things to debate with these options but in my opinion you could probably unrestrict three or four cards in vintage right now and have no effect on the metagame so just to answer i think if i'm not mistaken my so my history of the vintage banner restricted list was published in 2019 and i think that there was a raft of restrictions if i'm recalling correctly in 2020 it was golgari grave troll um the uh um Mystic, uh, Mystic Forge, Mystic Forge, and mm-hmm, two other mm-hmm. cards I think were restricted at that time, and I think they might have pulled one off. I just can't remember what it is right now because my, you know what? I, I, I have another way of looking at that. Hold on. Was it Fast Bond? Yes, was it was Fast Bond, bond that was pulled off. And yeah. I don't remember if it was that. Hold on, I have um, my timeline of vintage will have this. I can definitely. <laughs> that's why I should have looked at first, not my history of the Ben restricted <laughs> list, because I updated my. Okay, hold on. So the most recent, okay, the most recent change to the banner restricted list, Kevin, was the unbanning of Loris in February of 2021. Ah, yes. And then... That's still fairly fresh, but okay. Yes, and then preceding that was the banning of the banning of Loris in May of 2020. And then yeah. preceding that was the restriction of Narset in November 18th, 2019. And then the... Uh, there was a, a a big restricted list change on August 29th. Sorry, August 26th, 2019. And this is when Mystic Forge, Karn, Golgari, Grave Troll, and Misstep were restricted and Fastbond was unrestricted. And then preceding so, that, let me just go back one more. Fastbond's the last real one. What year was that again? Tw- 2019? 2019 early 2019 2019, august 2019 and then the next unrestriction before that was yogmoth's bargain was unrestricted in 2017 and thorn and mentor were restricted yeah so you see my point right i agree that ian does a good job i agree he's been a good steward of the format in this sense i don't count loris in my list of observations here even though it's it technically fits the description, I'm not counting Luris it's because banned, there's a legitimate reason for that, right? Restricted, Kevin. <laughs> well, I, I'm just teasing. Yeah, but there was a a structural I change understand. to the rules yes. that caused that one, right? So what am I seeing is that there has been one unrestriction fast bond in the last what four going on five no, years? No, no, this Yogmas bargain. That's Yogmas bargain. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Since 2017, that's I guess it was five. That's years ago. four and a half yeah. years ago now. So that's what I'm saying. You got one unrestriction, really, that's testing the format across four years? That's conservative. That fits my definition of conservative. And I can't cite the show number, but longtime listeners will remember that we've debated this issue a couple of times. Yes. One of the things that I was was studying some years ago is that... So typically, in the history of the format, cards have been restricted in bunches, meaning that when they make an announcement, it's rare that they'll restrict a single card. It's usually they restrict multiple cards. And you and I have discussed this at length, that I think that's a mistake, that you should never, unless it's absolutely unavoidable, you should always restrict one card at a time to see how Mm -hmm. the system evolves and responds. That said, and so one of the points of evidence in support of that is that in every single case, except one, in which they have restricted more than one card, they've later unrestricted a card. Now, that doesn't prove that (laughs) <laughs> Restricting more than one card is unnecessary because you could later say the system or the the market or the metagame evolved such that <laughs> the card no longer warranted it, but it, but it was originally warranted. Nonetheless, it's at least some evidence that um, that there's an you know a tendency towards over restriction. The ex- the counter example, yeah. the one counter example is when they simultaneously restricted Necropotence and Demonic Consultation, which remain both restricted. <laughs> um, 
So I have a sheet that sort of has an aggregate number of cards restricted at a time. And the peak number of cards ever restricted was 55. In, sorry, 53. I take that back. The peak number of cards ever restricted was 54 in, in early 2004. And then there was 53 restricted in 2008. And then the latest point at which I updated this was there were 50 restricted as of November 18th to 2019. I think that's I think that's the most recent, right? Because what did I just say? The most recent restrictions were Narset. The most recent restriction is Narset, which was in yeah November 18th, 2019. So that means there's 50 cards on the restricted list. Um, it's interesting because it, it got the the in the last decade the 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 nadir the lowest point was 41 cards, which was the number of cards on January 19th, 2015, Kevin. So it's actually mm-hmm. interesting between 2008 and 2015 the restricted list fell by fell from 53 to 41. That's a pretty yeah. big <laughs> decline. I mean they yeah, I they agree. that's I mean that's 12 cards got removed net, meaning that they probably added some cards in that period, but it was just they were they were really cleaning it up. Mm-hmm. So I I think I don't remember exactly when Ian Duke's tenure began, but I think that at least covers some of his tenure. Fair enough. Well, for whatever reason, and I think that uh, current design trends are a big factor, they have less opportunity to trim the list. But I think that a lot of the like Modern Horizons 2 style cards that we've all talked about and yeah, lamented Spurs and played with over the past couple of years, <laughs> right? <clears throat> that style of cards, I think it adds noise to the discussion, but it doesn't change the fact that that the net result for the last few years has been, I think, a conservative approach to unrestriction. Yes. I'm not saying it's unreasonable or, or, you know, misguided or anything. Just that it is simply conservative. That's all. And I think we're moving into a period where we should consider it. Well, it's hard to it's hard to make that conclusion because we don't actually know what they evaluated and what, you know, whether they are seriously evaluating that or if it's even something they're thinking about. I mean, they got it down to 41 cards, you know, in 2015. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I mean, Yes, but as an absolute standard, do we have any proof that that is a goal of theirs, aside from a, a little bit of anciently stated philosophy, right? Okay. I mean, I just don't know. I, I, I don't have no, know I have no I proof would, for or against. I just don't know. I agree with the characterization of being conservative in that regard. Maybe, maybe, maybe well, they could be a little bit more attentive to that. But it, it's very possible they're having vigorous debates or have had vigorous debates about possible unrestrictions. I find that unlikely, given all the other evidence. <laughs> There's no way that someone is having a vigorous debate about the the status of Library of Alexandria and simultaneously po- citing Voldelian Hexcatcher as a, a feature of the format. Okay, those two things are incompatible, right? All right. <laughs> now I don't mean to insult Ian. He's probably got lots more to do on this average day than debate the veracity of the vintage metagame. But however, I think as longtime analyzers and I would argue subject matter experts in this re- arena, it's plain to us. And it has been for a while that there are opportunities in this realm. That's all. There may be. It may also be that they've, they're just not sure. I mean, I think we talked at one point about Windfall as a possible likely candidate for unrestriction. Maybe yep, yep. Imperial Seal. I just, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> these yeah. are... The- Imperial Seal can go. Jar can go. Library can go. Well, I think I mean- you get some argumentation <laughs> on some of those. But yes. Okay. Well, granted, but... <laughs> that's not the that's not what we're here to discuss. We can save that discussion yeah. for another time. Anyway. Yes. Yeah, we will get back to that at some other episode. Any other announcements that you want to share before we move into the big topic today? No. All right. 
All right, then buckle in because we have a lot to talk about for Magic 30th Anniversary Edition. going to try to take a very structured approach to this as we like to do but that's for a number of reasons and that's because this product announcement bears a lot of different types of analysis we're going to talk about the announcement itself the community reaction our own reaction and several far-reaching implications about the product and what it portends yes and in particular we will discuss the implications for the reserve list but we're going to hold that towards near the end yeah yeah and we're going to start with some just basic descriptions like we like to do. What is this product? What did they say about it? What do we know about it? And so on. So we've got the the announcement here that we can pull a few citations from, Steve. Where do you Let want to begin? Let me just read some of the, the key language from this announcement. And this announcement was released on, or published, I should say, on October 4th, 2022. So here, let me just give you some excerpts and key language. We'll take it carefully. 30th Anniversary Edition is a commemorative, collectible, non-tournament legal product celebrating 30 years of magic. So that's the first sentence of the first relevant descriptive paragraph, Kevin. Commemorative, collectible, non-tournament legal. Thoughts on that? Commemorative is a bogus word. It has no (laughs) meaning. And I mean, I could say that this paperclip on my desk, you know, commemorates the passing of Ronald Reagan. It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't mean anything. Collectible is obviously a a bit of a term of art in this industry, right? But it's also meaningless. I could also collect, uh, I don't know, this piece of paper next to me. Like anything is collectible if you choose it to be. It's pure marketing. The information that really starts to get juicy here is non-tournament legal, of course. Yes. And I think anyone who's heard about this already knows this well. But in case you haven't, these are not tournament legal cards yes they have an alternate back yeah a, a very nice one which we can talk about when we talk about aesthetics and that also happens to have a kind of a gold border around it on the and, back the front the face back, of the card looks by the normal way, the back has an image of black lotus in, in yes. zoom in yeah and then it says it's magic quite cool gathering yeah quite cool and then the rest of this sentence is celebrating 30 years of magic well yes, no which is, it's not which is, it's not commemoration is close to celebrating so it's a little bit redundant <laughs> to say that and and also there's Aside from the fact that you've chosen the first full release of cards from the game, there is no other well, real celebration going on here. Well, we're going to get to that in the second sentence. Let yeah. me just say, I think it is fair to describe this as commemorative because it is commemorative of 30 years of magic. It is clearly designed to be collectible. and it's. The, but I agree <laughs> with you that the most important part and the operative part is non-tournament legal. The, the thing to understand is that there is no such thing as some people online and on Twitter in the community are describing these as proxies. That is not what these are. There are magic cards and then there are non-magic cards. <laughs> they, they, a magic card is a very specific thing. It is a game object. And I don't want to I, I don't I want to get into this later, but a game object has a specific definition with rules of magic, right? Um, this is simply saying it doesn't say these are proxies. It just means these are not permitted permitted for tournaments, which by the mm-hmm. way, there is plenty of precedent for this, right? There are 
Um, mm-hmm. Just to just to go through a few of them. The original is collector's edition and international edition, which were released in what late ninety three, early ninety four, and then secondarily there are the products like the Pro Tour uh, collector decks that I got from mm-hmm. Pro, I purchased those a number of years ago for Pro Tour New York nineteen ninety six, and then the subsequent gold borders. to that, what the gold borders? Yes, and I was going to say that, and then there's all of the sort of like world championship decks, et cetera, et cetera, gold borders. And then, yes, yeah, so there's plenty of non-tournament legal product. And in addition to the unsets, which are non-tournament legal product, which are silver mm-hmm. borders. So creating or printing product that's non-tournament legal is not new, not even close to new in Magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is new, however, is that all of those products, every single one of those products is from the front face clearly indicative of not being tournament legal. The CE and IE cards have square corners, and the other products we just mentioned have either silver or gold border. These cards have neither of those. So they, I believe, are the first, could be wrong about this, but either the first broad product, meaning a product that has multiple different elements to it, that on the face could very well appear to be a tournament legal card, but is not. You'd have to know that the 30th edition product is not tournament legal from the face. It's kind of a tie because Infinity just also cracked that nut for the first time at the same time. Oh, it did? Infinity is black-bordered? Infinity is black-bordered, and the only way you can identify cards that aren't legal is with the specific hollow stamp. So there is still an identifier, but we're creeping away from it being very obvious. Got it. Okay, let's move (laughs) to the second sentence. Inspired by limited edition beta, 30th anniversary edition lets fans and collectors experience some of the most iconic elements of Magic's Uh. I think that everything in that sentence appears to me to be relatively descriptive and accurate. I, I think that it's interesting, fans and collectors. So it's encompassing two broad groups. And I certainly am a fan of limited edition, not necessarily beta. I'm an alpha collector. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it does it will let them experience the, those elements by collect, by get, acquiring these cards if they can. I think, don't think there's anything inherently objectionable in that sentence. Is there anything you wanted to call out by that sentence? Uh, just that the word players is not present. Right. Um, I do, that's, that's I think, deliberate. I also think that the word inspired is interesting because it's <laughs> not a direct reprint of limited edition of beta, and we will mm-hmm. we will get to that later. Yeah, okay, for a couple three. of different reasons. Right. Featuring the original art that inspired a generation of Magic fans, I think that's also fair to say as a clause. <laughs> yeah. The original art is very inspiring. 30th anniversary edition is built with modern sensibilities and nostalgic roots. So that's sort of like a topic sentence that's going to be unpacked through the rest of the article. Um, But I think what they're essentially saying there, Kevin, is that it's not going to be the art, the frame, and some of the selection of cards is going to be not strictly adhere. I think what they're saying is it's not going to strictly adhere to limited edition of beta. And they're sort of foreshadowing that, right? I think that's absolutely. Okay. And in the article, the, there are three images accompanying these opening paragraphs, Shiv and Dragon, Llanowar Elves, Lightning Bolts. All iconic. Those, those cards are quite iconic choices. They are shown, obviously, in their 30th anniversary edition forms with the, their printing styles and their borders in the retro frames. But it is clear to anyone who is really either um, <clears throat> nostalgic or very detail-oriented with respect to beta that these are not beta cards. Yes, they don't even look. They look more like fourth edition than beta cards, frankly. If they do. Fourth edition they was do. black bordered. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I guess they could be sixth edition. Um, 
The next sentence, the fourth sentence, relevant sentence here, says 30th anniversary edition will be on sale for the holidays, available November 28th for $999 on 30th edition.wizards.com. Okay, that's big. So at this point in the article, it's saying that this product is going to cost $1,000, but it hasn't told us what the product is yet. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah. okay, that's a lot of money. I don't recall anything costing $1,000 as a direct sale product, Kevin. The biggest thing that I remember being a high price point product was the From the Vault sets. Do you remember what those cost MSRP when they were first released, roughly? You know, it's funny. I don't remember what the MSRP was, but I think it hovered between $50 and $100. Maybe some of them went slightly above $100. I don't remember. <laughs> well, they were they definitely went for more than that. So I want to be clear. Okay. I'm talking about MSRP. Like yes. the, one of the problems with with from the vault right. was that it it demonstrated the issues with the MSRP. MSRP. That's right. Correct. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so but either right. way, none of them none of them were as close to this, this at is launch, right? By far Some of them the went most up to expensive over 100. direct product that we've ever seen, I think. Um I think that's true, although the re- very recently released Warhammer 40k collector's edition EDH decks uh, are giving this a run for their money. But they weren't a thousand dollars. They were only MSRP? a few, a few hundred less. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, Amazon okay. sold those decks for like I forget what the number was, six hundred and change. Wow. Okay. So this and is they're going a, for more than that now. Significantly more than it's anything. Still, yes. Yeah. This is still much more than that. Okay. Then the fourth sentence says, and even with Magic growing tremendously through the past thirty years, that's throughout the past thirty years, that's a given. We've gone back to our roots with a limited edition print run. So the important part of that sentence is that. It's not just that this is expensive. This is going to be highly restricted in terms of print. So, and, and there's another part too, which is that this is direct to consumer. Yes. Which is, this is the first time that Wizards has done this in this guise. No, not it's not going well, through shops. Or so, I mean, secret layer notwithstanding, which are limited time things also, but those are print to demand. So, secret yeah. layer is still meaningfully different than this. In that, if I wanted to go buy. 100 secret layers i could do that and and shops do right i don't know and i don't think it says so necessarily in this announcement how exactly how limited this will be per customer but my instincts are you probably can't go buy 100 of these i think it's probably going to be limited in some very small quantity per customer yes and by the way i tried to go to this 30th edition.wizards.com website and it asked for a login so (laughs) (laughs) it's not functional right now it's just not launched Okay, the next sentence, sentence five, third paragraph of the relevant section, says we expect that orders in North America will be received this year. I assume that that means that customers who place orders on November 28th or thereafter will get their shipment this year. That's an ambiguous mm-hmm. phrase that could have been better worded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because logically what that's saying is that orders will be received by, what that means is that orders will be received by wizards this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> poor phrasing. Already stated, yes. Next sense, if you live in other regions, this product is shipped to. It will likely arrive sometimes in 23. We'll be sharing more details on how the sale will work as we move closer to the sale date. So all of that is not germane to discuss. Now, the next part of the article, they have an image of a box, and then they have an image of a booster pack. Now, so far, they haven't mentioned anything about a box or a booster pack, so it's this is weird, right? <laughs> the next <laughs> sentence says, each display of 30th anniversary edition will contain four packs of pure nostalgia reimagined in a modern context. This is the first reference to a display. Now, I don't know about you, Kevin, but a display 
in ordinary vernacular usually refers to something that a retailer would have. So if you go into, I don't know, a bookstore, and the mm-hmm. first thing you see is a display that has a series of books in it. Like maybe it's the <laughs> Harry Potter display, right? Yeah. And they have all seven Harry Potter books or however many there are. This is odd. Odd language, odd vernacular. A display in the context of a direct-to-consumer product is very odd. I assume, just from reading so far, they're talking about this box. But the box is not a display in any ordinary sense of the word. It doesn't, right? I mean, like, it doesn't, like, have a stand built into it or a nook or anything, right? It's a very, yeah, it's a very narrow, like, retailer-style vernacular for a booster box. Okay. It's rarely used (laughs) by anyone other than retailers. But, yes, booster boxes are sometimes referred to as as displays. Which I would not call A display box. Yeah. Okay. It's... A part of that is that this announcement is targeted at investors, which is a, a thing we can talk more about. And I, mean, I think uh, that's the reason for this this language. There are plenty of display. I, I know from dabbling in other communities. I mean, you're a big G.I. Joe collector, Kevin. I don't <laughs> that's right. Know if our uh, audience knows that or not, that they follow on Twitter, they probably know that. But there were plenty of like Toys R Us, you know, toy store displays for products like that from the 80s and probably 90s, right? Well, I mean, there still are. And people collect those displays, right? It's like people want those displays. That is a display. This is not a display. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It it is a strange word choice to be targeting at people like you and me, players, collectors, or otherwise. This is a really weird... a product package or a product box or something like that. But okay. They could could have just said each pack or package will contain four packs of pure nostalgia, reimagined modern context. Next sentence. Each pack contains 15 cards, 13 in the modern frame, one rare, three uncommons, seven commons, and two basic lands. So let's break up this sentence because this sentence has three, you know, lots of components. I've only read two thirds of it. Um, 15 cards, that is a normal booster size, right? 13 cards yes. in the modern frame, one rare, three uncommons. That is pretty close to what an, all boosters of you generally had, right? It's especially like if you were to open an alpha pack, that would essentially be what it is, right? Mostly, yeah. Um, it would be, uh, yeah, it would be alpha one rare, three uncommon, and then you would have eleven commons, which would include basic lands. Yeah, and that and that's the thing is there are some vagaries of distribution in the early sets, such that you could get a basic. There was a one basic land on the rare sheet, if you recall. The, there, so yes, <laughs> it's there, technically a rare, but so, it's not a, the kind of card you associate with rares. But yes, yeah. there is, there is, a, <laughs> there were basic. There was a the rare island, but there's no way of knowing which of those was the rare <laughs> unless you actually yeah. have a sealed pack and you know the order of the sheet and how the right, sheet was collated. Right. You could potentially know. And there were also a handful of beta packs that were all alpha rares. There were leftovers from the original print run for Alpha that made it in. <laughs> so there's extremely rare version of that. But the, all of that aside, <laughs> I'm That's talking so about awesome. like revised packs, right? It's basically one rare, three uncommons, and the rest commons. Here, though, yep. it's specifying one rare, three uncommons, seven commons, and two basic land, which is good because it's essentially saying we don't want you to get like three or four basic lands in a, in a booster pack. <laughs> <laughs> which was common in those days. Right. And it says plus, so that let's just add that up. That's that's one rare, three uncommons, that's four cards, plus seven, that's 11 cards, and two basic lands, that's that's 13. Those are the thir- 13 cards in the modern frame, plus one basic land in the retro frame, meaning that you are going to get one basic land in each pack that's in the original a- alpha beta frame, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't get, I mean, 
if you hate the modern frame, you get the old frame. Plus one additional retro frame card and a token. So the token is the 16th card, but it's not a magic card. Right, Kevin? Right. And they have an image here of Fast Bond (laughs) as a human wizard token creature. (laughs) I don't know what the... uh, What we need, Kevin, are we need the um, Hive tokens is what we need because that's the... (laughs) only token generator in beta <laughs> so i wonder i'm, I'm gonna look and see if they put the the hive yeah they do they have a wasp, wasp token that has the art from the hive on it in the in the um image gallery yeah in the i image haven't gallery. looked at that yet i'm gonna and you're right that is the most apt uh token in fact they have interestingly chosen to introduce tokens into this set which this set is not capable of producing there are clue tokens in this set with the art from james day tome and copper tablet <laughs> there are treasure tokens with the art from disrupting scepter sunglasses awesome. of urza and rod of ruin i wonder so if these tokens are some... going to be one of the most popular elements of the set honestly because I, you can I use think those... there's a reasonable chance of that you yeah can use those in tournaments yeah i yeah. mean as as tokens uh okay um going back to the main thing so <laughs> essentially what this is saying is you're going to get 15 cards two in the retro frame one is a is a basic land the other is a non-land okay now here's where things continue to get really interesting the retro frame slot is especially i'm I'm quoting continuing especially interesting as approximately three out of every 10 packs will contain a rare retro frame card anything from a black lotus to a mahamoti Jin to a volcanic island that means that some packs will contain two rares and some will even contain two pieces of the power nine so what this is saying is that although every pack will have at least one rare, three out of 10 packs, 30% of the packs, which means that basically if you buy one of these displays, you will have it probably, I mean, if it's three out of 10, that means, I mean, that's basically at least one, possibly two of your packs will have a rare in the retro frame slot, Kevin. The rare, the rares are going to be massively overrepresented in the retro frame slot is what this means. Yep. Right? Um, so theoretically you could get a black Lotus in the new frame and a black Lotus in the retro frame. <laughs> theoretically. Okay. Yeah, but, the, the, yeah. The, the, mo- the utmost pack in this product would be a double black Lotus pack. Speaking of volcanic Island, we know that the dual lands are an iconic part of magic's early history. So each dual land appears twice as frequently as any other non-dual land rare. This is true for both modern frame and retro frame. dual lands. So this is interesting, Kevin. So the rares or, so let's are overrepresented in the retro frame slot, right? Thirty percent mm-hmm. of the retro frame slot is going to be rares, mm-hmm. but this is not saying the dual land is overrepresented in terms of the retro frame slot. It's saying that they're overrepresented in terms of the rare portion of the retro frame slot, mm-hmm. which is different math. Yeah, yeah. So it's in short, they doubled the number of each dual that's on the rare sheet. So you can kind of treat yes. it like there's two rare cycles of dual lands. But, <laughs> they just happen to be the same. But what that means is that you're more likely, in a sense, to get a... I think it means you're you're more likely to get a, a dual land in the retro frame slot than in the in the, not, in the modern frame slot. Because yeah. rarity is overrepresented in the retro frame slot. And therefore, yeah. by significant margin, right? I mean, it's essentially... I mean, I, I don't know the math, but, but that means that you're you're significantly more li- more likely to get it in the retro frame slot. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Additionally, nearly every 30th anniversary edition includes 
included matches the rarity of its counterpart in limited edition beta. That means there are no mythic rares and no rarities have been shifted. These cards do, however, have modern wording and modern corners, and we've slightly touched up some of the art for a clearer modern look. We're going to talk about the aesthetics later, but Kevin, have you gone through and looked at the wording? Having done for our 100th episode, (laughs) our gargantuan 100th episode, a discussion Uh uh of every alpha and beta card, have you noticed any shifts in wording that are interesting or notable? Or should we... Uh Go ahead. I have not been able to demonstrate that any wording has been changed. And I have an incomplete memory, of course, because we talked about Alpha for quite a long time and for quite a while ago now. However, some standout examples ring true in my mind such that very noteworthy oracle wordings, I think, have been maintained. And I see no evidence that something has been shifted or changed recently to coordinate with this set. In other words, functional errata. Yeah, I don't believe there has been any functional errata here. I believe that everything that we discussed and laughed about with respect to the Oracle wording Camouflage. on certain alpha cards, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's all still in place right now. Okay. And so what that means, and we can talk more about aesthetics later, but what that means is if you're really jonesing for a really humorous uh, card to represent and replicate the actual Oracle wording on some hilarious things like Animate Dead and Camouflage and Illusionary Mask... This is your go-to source for those fun uh, idiosyncrasies. Okay, the next paragraph continues on the point about aesthetics and rarity. It says, the only card that doesn't match its original rarity is another special add-on for 30th anniversary. Soul Ring is a card that's near and dear to many players, so we created a special new crop of the original art that will appear... The common a common rarity in both modern and retro frames. Soul Ring also appears at uncommon. So that's really interesting. They're trying to make the packs more attractive, I think, with that decision, Kevin, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're t- well, I mean, there's no two ways about it. Uh, beta, limited edition in general, has terrible, awful, no good, very bad variants. Yes. In terms of the <laughs> opening packs of- is terrible. Yeah. yeah. And it and it's not terrible in a fun way either. It's terrible in a like 87% of the time you're going to be the, really unhappy the kind of way. The rares are terrible, the commons are <laughs> awful, and the the only redeeming thing is if you get like a decent uncommon. <laughs> I, yeah, I was I was going to say I would wager to say that the, the the average pack is probably going to have more value in the uncommon slot than any other slot. And probably in the retro frame slot because That's right. Probably in that. Because you have a decent chance of getting a dual land. Um, yeah, there, there are some other nostalgic touches as well. The retro frame is the same frame we used in time spiral remastered. We also brought back the original white mana symbol, the original basic land template and the classic art, but this is only for the retro frame, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't remember time spiral remastered. I remember time spiral. (laughs) So what do they mean by that? Well, time spiral remastered was another set. It was an entire reprint set though. Okay. And it's one that included retro frames famously and force but it was one that um reprinted some cards that had never been in the retro frame into the retro frame. Like um I don't know what's an example. Baral, Chief of Compliance, right? Like a card that's never been in the old frame was introduced in Time Spiral Remastered. A completely reprint set but with new aesthetics for certain cards. Got it. Thank you. Uh continuing on. These collectible cards are not tournament league. They have a different back and are not legal in any sanctioned magic event. Okay, so a different back 
it's interesting they call that out and they, they, they it's explicit, but that does not render something non anymore. <laughs> not the, by itself. No, because the printing of dual of dual face cards was the first instance, I believe, where the rules of magic changed in that regard, right, Kevin? That's right. So the back is not determinative. Magic can make Wizards of the Coast can print a magic card that appears to be tournament legal in every respect and just deem it not tournament legal, right? I mean, <laughs> they can do that through banning. They can do that through whatever. Yep, yep. So And vice versa. What's What do you mean vice versa? They, well, they can reprint a card that doesn't look like it should be tournament legal and say that it is. Yes, that's tr- also true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which is, I mean, arguably they've been doing for, for months now, years perhaps, with um, uh, Secret Lair, right? They've been printing secret layer cards that have basically no relationship to magic cards in terms of design and aesthetics, and they are still legal. Yes. Super cool. Um, so continuing forward, it says they are meant to be collectible items commemorating 30 years of magic. So they're emphasizing this is a collectible product. Mm-hmm. So few people had the experience of opening a Black Lotus or a Mox Sapphire when Magic was originally released that we wanted to recapture some of that iconic experience for generations new and old. Now, depending on how much product they make, it still may be so few. <laughs> so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. really it doesn't really help in that regard much. I, I I think that I can't prove the mathematics on this, but there is a very realistic chance that a smaller percentage of players today will have that experience than did players in 1993 that's very fair with yeah yeah, right because unlimited edition may have had a a larger print run than this by a large margin this product could have two or three orders of magnitude larger print run than the limited edition and still reach a much smaller portion of the audience wow yeah well okay we're gonna get into that hold that thought i want you to i want you to hold that thought (laughs) Mm -hmm. while we wanted to share some of the experience we are also reinter we also reinterpreted this product with a modern approach we wanted to be nostalgic, but not everything met our modern standards, so we removed six cards completely. The cards removed are Contract from Below, Dark Pack, Demonic Attorney, Earthbind, Weakness, and Crusade. So, Crusade is clearly removed because it's part of the the I don't know what you call it, when you call them the racist cards. I don't I don't yeah. really consider it a racist card, but whatever. The cultural sensitivity bans. There you go. Cultural sem- sensitivity bans. Um, weakness was not part of that, those bannings. Neither was Earthbind. Well, I, yes, but Earthbind is, is being, I assume it's because of the art being yeah. problematic. But weakness, Definitely. The, I don't think there's, there's nothing problematic with the art, so it must be thematic there. Uh, yeah, I believe there are cultural inclusivity, um, and ableism implications with that that's, card. That, that's what I've heard from discussion. That makes sense. Yeah. The other three cards, those are the, um, anti-cards. They, did they hit all, all of the anti-cards here, Kevin? Yes. Contract, Dark Pack, and Demonic Attorney R3. Yes. Yep, that's right. So they've removed three cards for anti, one card for art, one for ableism, and then one for because it's part of their racism designation. And again, mm-hmm. you can go back. We discussed that extensively in one of our earlier episodes. Do you know which episode yeah. that was, Kevin? So that announcement was made on June 10th of 2020, and we reviewed it later that year in our 2020 year in review. That would be episode 102 of our show. Great. So check that out. Okay. Additionally, we made some smaller changes to a few other cards, mostly with flavor text. Finally, so I assume that means that they're sort of taking out some offensive <laughs> offensive flavor text. I'm not sure what they're referring to, but... 
you know, I don't know the answer to that, but that wasn't my first implication. It could be, but I'm also hoping that they also spiced up a few cards. Because as we've talked about in some of our, well, our limited edition review, for example, some of the early cards are famous for having, um, they're from having real world quotes, uh, like, you know, um, the rhyme of the ancient Mariner and things like that. And Shakespeare. so I'm hoping that, yeah, Shakespeare, I'm hoping that they did a little bit more of that. Actually. I don't, I can't prove it though. I haven't seen any review of that. Don't we have the card gallery? Can't we see? We can, but that would require kind of a comprehensive comparison of before and after. Fair enough. <laughs> You'll, You'll note that they've got Black Knight and White Knight here, and I believe that these two cards, since they're demonstrating them here, demonstrate additions of flavor text that didn't exist in beta. Continuing forward, 30th Anniversary Edition celebrates 30 years of magic by recapturing the, well, magic of the early years. It's a memorable, collectible, an iconic experience, and a truly unforgettable way to commemorate our favorite game. Then it has images of the, um, what do we call this cycle again, Kevin? Boons, Boons. thank you. Boon cycle. And it says, to see all the cards, visit the Magic 30th Anniversary Edition card image gallery. And that's it. So the first thing I want to talk about, we've already covered a lot of ground, but I want to talk about the price point in the limited edition print run. They don't tell us what the print run is going to be, but limited edition. So (laughs) what does that mean to you? What do you think this means in terms of how many cards we'll see print? I I really have no idea. I mean, the definition of limited edition in the modern era could mean almost anything. There is some precedent with respect to the fact that the contemporary magic sets, basic uh, run-of-the-mill booster product sets, are printed a couple of times depending on demand, meaning they are, there are print runs of those sets. But it's, it's distributor-driven, right? It's order-driven. It's, it's sell-through-driven. And so those things are, for lack of a better term, unlimited, but they're only limited in terms of time. Right? How much do people buy in a period of a couple of months? Then there are the direct-to-consumer products like Secret Lair, which are not limited. They're 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 print to order, and so like I said, people can go on there and order hundreds of copies, yes. and and big retailers do. I would expect, as I said before, that this product will be less available than the average Secret Lair, and possibly significantly so. Like they might limit it to one, two, four per household, or something like that. Yes. And if they do that, then it is going to be, well, dramatically, dramatically limited. Because even, because even the, the whales that might be inclined to order 10 or 20 of these, if they're limited to four copies, that's just going to make the distribution gonna, tiny. You're going to spend $4,000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So my, I don't know the answer. My suspicion is that it's going to be significantly less than the average secret layer. And that's a pretty small So already. let's go through some print runs. Or Alpha Beta Unlimited for a moment, and then IE and CE yeah. points of comparison. So yeah. the standard old Crystal Creep, uh, Crystal Keep, Crystal Keep data on Alpha Beta Unlimited rare print runs were eleven hundred rares, about thirty three hundred for Alpha of each. That is eleven hundred copies of each rare for Alpha, about thirty three hundred of each copy for Beta. I think it was about eighteen thousand six hundred copies for Unlimited. Those figures were imprecise. And Peter Atkinson a few years ago clarified the actual alpha rare print run was about 1,008 of each copy, and I think sl- and, and, and so forth. And we know that there were 15,000 copies of the IE and collector's edition sets. Kevin, do you remember how many of each? It was 10,000 for collectors, 5,000 for international. But yeah, it's worth noting that those cards are, re- are hard to distinguish right. from one another. And- <laughs> 
they're they are different, but it's very well, they slight. They just say one says collector's edition, the other says international edition. They're otherwise identical. So those sets. I yeah. mean, I, I, I started promoting about 15 years ago that people should be buying those because I anticipated <laughs> that they would be yep. good in old school and allowed in old school, maybe 10 years ago. And it was more than that. Yeah. About 15 years ago. I remember when I, when I was living in Columbus, I was recommending and telling people to purchase those. Anyway, um, the it's different because collector's edition and international edition were a product where you bought a box and the box had the entire al- uh, beta set in it with square corners. So the rarity of Black Lotus was no different than the rarity of Jade Statue or the rarity of Healing Sap, Kevin. That's that's yep. not the case here. When I originally right. heard about this Absolutely. product, I assumed that that's what they were selling. I thought this was just a limited edition, I mean, a collector's edition type set that had said 30th anniversary on it. <laughs> and then as I read this well, article, because... You, and yeah, I mean, you could get halfway through the article and still believe Because that. you see the box, right? And then, and then you yep. see, then you get to the, you know, the description, and you're like, oh my god, they're charging $1,000 for four packs. <laughs> okay, so, Kevin, is a point of comparison, that means that there are, the the largest quantity of printed playable Black Lodi is unlimited, which is 18,600. Question. And then there's 15,000 mm-hmm. combined international edition and CE. And it, do, we, that mean, do we think that the number of Black Lotuses printed here this is pure speculation, and it's a rare, mm-hmm. and it's in both the retro slot and the modern rare slot. So there's, you know, if there's, I don't know how many packs, if there's a million packs of these, you know, and then you take the percentage of rares, it's going to be more than just whatever the percentage of rares is, because, in fact, it's probably more likely to show up in the retro slot than the rare slot, because, because, um, no, it's not, definitely not, because three of the, thir- 30% are going to be retro of the retro slots are going to be rares. But anyway, the point is that, do you think, here's my question, a very pointed and specific question. Do you think that there will be more Black Lotus generated and circulated through this product than were printed and circulated through unlimited edition or fewer? If you had to guess, which side of that would you fall on? More or fewer? If I had to guess. So I can phone a friend a little bit on this because... um, famously mathematic pro player, former pro player, Frank Karsten, released an article about the odds of cracking a black lotus in this product. Given the distribution factors, he estimated that you, he calculated, I should say, that you would have to crack approximately 24 packs, uh, not packs, 24 displays <laughs> um, on average to find a wow. black lotus. That's $24,000. <laughs> that's right. Now, However, if so, if you estimate that there's one Black Lotus per 24 purchases that's a, that's of this, $24,000. 96 packs. Yeah, 100 packs. Yeah. Um, then you can estimate out how many people are going to buy this. If my previous estimate is reasonable that these are limited to, say, four, maybe 10, I don't know, per household, something like that, I still expect that there's going to be, gosh, uh, I, I have no idea how to do this realistically, but there will be many thousands of orders for this product, oh, yes. right? I mean, but this is not printed. Whales to order. alone. I mean, you're getting into the. No, it's it's not. But my point is, your your question is basically about the estimate of how much this will be no, ordered. My question combined that's not, by the distribution the order doesn't matter, right? It's I mean, you have to you sit down, you know, let's say eight a.m. November twenty eighth to place an order. You log in, 
and you yeah. you place an order and says, "I'm sorry, we've already sold out of this product." <laughs> you know, okay. Well, well, that's the thing is I, we don't know what that limiter yes. is. We really but don't. But if I'm if but if I'm them, and we're going to get into the economics of this thing, but if I'm them, I'm going to make it so that I can make many many thousands of orders okay. here. Like I'm just one. It's limited, but I, I it's not. It's just I mean, limited means a lot. But I'm just wondering, like aggregate. Yeah. Do you think this will generate more black Lodi than unlimited yeah. that were printed in an unlimited edition, un, in unlimited edition or fewer? And so there are eighteen thousand six hundred of those, right? Calculation. Yeah, you'd have to multiply that by um, to reach that number of black Lodi. You'd have to multiply that by twenty-four orders of this product, right? Yes. You'd have to open. It's four hundred forty-six thousand four hundred. You have to open four four hundred forty-six thousand of these to approximate the number of lotuses from unlimited. And if you say that, you know, some whales are going to order four of these a piece, then that's a hundred thousand whales, give or take. That seems high. You know, plus, uh, um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I agree so with just, that. Well, take a guess. Do you think it's more or less? That's what I'm trying to get at. Just I want to. I think it's so more. Think there's going to be I think, more black. I think lotuses. this product okay. will print more lotuses than okay. unlimited that means that there will also yeah. be more than unlimited edition or collector's edition that's do you yeah. think it'll be substantially more or do you think it will be about the same i think i actually do think it'll be close okay a hundred thousand people okay. ordering four copies of this so, that's a lot there might not be so, quite that many but there's a lo- going to be a lot of so people ordering one copy. player and you are allowed to basically play anything that has the modern sorry that has the original you can play alpha beta unlimited black lotus or you can play IE or CE. That means the the mm-hmm. number of lotuses available for play in an old school tournament then are fifteen thousand from CE IE, eighteen thousand six hundred from Unlimited, thirty three hundred from Beta, eleven a uh, thousand from Alpha. So the total, if you add all that up, you get to about what about thirty eight thousand something like that. I didn't. My mouth is yeah. math is a little imprecise there, but it's thirty about thirty four thousand excluding. Uh, alpha and beta, and then if you add alpha and beta, you're you get to about thirty-eight thousand. So you, even if we were to add fifteen thousand, or let's say another nineteen thousand, that is a significant yeah. number of black lotuses that could potentially exist. Now, there's going to be a lot of this product that will never be opened. It will just sit sit Agreed. in vaults and sit in collectors' uh, cabinets across the country. Agreed. But there will be a significant amount of it that will be open, and yeah. That means that some of that will matriculate to old school players or commander players or casual players who will get to use these cards, right? <laughs> this may set the record for the least opened magic product ever <laughs> that's in a randomized booster. <laughs> but that's neither okay. here nor there. <laughs> so, okay, that was the first question. So you're on record in saying you think it's going to be more... I think, yeah, I think it will be more than... It's significantly more total. than CEIE by implication. Okay. Yeah. It'll be interesting to learn if we ever learn that yeah. number. There's the got to be. I doubt we well, will. There will probably be a. W- I doubt there will ever be a. The, the, yeah, there'll probably never be an official publication no, but of that. Number. Someone at the printer will will leak that. You know, you'll, there'll be ways of finding out at some future point. Mm. You know, that I see. there are maybe there are workers yeah. who will either in the distribution or in the pr- at the print printer. <laughs> you know, unless they're signing really tight NDAs, <laughs> the print run will eventually get out. I mean, aren't print runs for Modern Magic somewhat? known or is it comp- i know it's relatively see it's a trade secret but it's it yeah they're only estimates okay. it's only it's trade secret to know yeah. okay so okay that's the first really interesting question i wanted to get to so what that means is that this product is not designed 
to significantly increase the quantity of any of these cards. It's not. It just cannot be. Because even if you, I mean, even if you consider this a doubling of the number of Black Lotuses in existence, it's not making it significantly or meaningfully, meaningfully is a better word, accessible in any real sense. Because even Mm -hmm. if, I mean, what percentage of this product do you think will remain sealed five years from from now? What percentage will be sealed sealed in five five years? years from the order date. It's but, so but hard to say, but I would guess more. Yeah, more than okay, half. I would go. say so, yeah. and they would have to know that as well. So I assume that this the purpose of one of the goals of this product is not to significantly increase the quantity <laughs> available quantity of black lotuses and power nine, and, and to a lesser extent even dual lands. It cannot be well, because the product. I think I'm following you, but what definition of significant are you using? Like a, a 25 or 30 percent increase in such a rare card. I would argue is possibly significant. Well, I think what I'm saying is this product, uh, 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 certainly not a primary goal, but I'm saying that by implication, even a secondary goal of this product is not, contrary to what I've heard elsewhere, mm-hmm. a goal of to well, create broader access to some of these older cards. It cannot be given the design of this product, what you just said. I agree with your conclusion, okay. yeah. I do think I, by the numbers, as a percentage of these old cards, the increase in quantity is significant. But you must factor into that comparison the cost. Yes, that you're the paying. cost. The cost per yes. is so this, is very high. This is so you can always set as a goal and be foolish about the implementation of the goal, right? It's like I could say I want to, you know, earn a million dollars a year, but I'm going to become a public school teacher, right? It's like that's it. You can't accomplish <laughs> yeah. that goal through directly through you know the occupation or career that you might have selected. The point is that. Um, they could set that goal, but it would be silly. But I'm just assuming they're reasonable enough that the, the, that one of the goals here is not to significantly amplify the circulation of these cards, of these cards for whatever reason. I'm just assuming that's not the case. Okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, one of the things that you've just hit upon, Kevin, is the fundamental tension between price and supply. I remember mm-hmm. Eric Dupuy, who used to ELD, used to organize a bunch of fun, bunch of local vintage tournaments, and it was sort of a I think a relatively no well known New England dealer. And when people in vintage community would complain about the prices of these cards, he would say, or people would say, these cards are not accessible. They're not available. He would always say, no, they're accessible. They're just extremely, they're extremely expensive. And that to me, that's <laughs> yeah. a very cute answer because it ignores the fact that price is a function of supply. <laughs> and right. so it's like saying, yeah, they're available. They're just they're really expensive. The reason they're expensive is because there's a, they're not very available. <laughs> it's like, I never yeah. liked that answer. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's just talk a little bit more about the price for a moment and, and we'll, we'll unpack the economics. Of it. So Kevin, you, what do you make? Let me ask it in a broad way and then I'll drill down a, a bit. What do you make of the price? It's very cautious in a sense, vis-a-vis the reserved list, which we can get into why that is. I believe it was quite calculated. Um, in what sense? Calculated in vis-a-vis profit? Vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis comparison. The reserve uh, list? What do you mean? No. Um, I believe that it took many factors into play and was very purposeful, is what I would say. I think reserve list is an enormous factor. I think the kind of calculations that people in the community, like Frank Carson, have done about the comparison to collector's edition is illustrative of some implicit goals. And I believe that 
there is strong evidence given how high the price is and given the verbiage of the announcement that this product is meant to establish some kind of precedent. Okay. There's a lot there. But yeah, there is a lot there. You're, you're answering questions beyond the question I answered. I, I asked rather. Fair enough. The question I asked is, what do I feel no, about the price? The question is, what do you like? What specific factors do you think went into deciding to set this price um, for this product um, at nine hundred dollars? Like, what what do you think is the are the key factors that they weighed? Current market price for collector's edition okay. cards. Um, the size of the print run that they have planned, which we but can't again, that's know, a fu- right? Like, but I just said that price is a function of supply. So, you know, okay. uh, yeah, but they're choosing both things yes. at the same time, right? So, I mean, there's an interrelationship. Yes. If you're saying that, th- is it a factor? It has okay. to be a factor, right? <laughs> if they were planning to print these things for, with a secret layer, so distribution is another yes. answer because if, if this was going to be a print-to-demand product, the price structure would be dramatically different. But yes. it's not purposefully limited. You know, artificial yes. scarcity. Um. I think those those are some of the big ones. I'm sure I'm forgetting so something noteworthy that we'll get to. Do you agree but. with the premise that Wizards of the Coast, as a company and a subsidiary of Hasbro's primary objective <laughs> with any product, this included, or perhaps this especially, is to generate profit for the company, the corporation? Would you agree with that statement? As a, as a company? Okay. Yes, so absolutely. I, I think that's true. I think when, when a lot of the community yeah. is talking about the goals of this product, they're overlooking the most important goal, which is to generate revenue and therefore profit for the company. Now let's be pedantic for a moment and talk about what goes into profit. Profit is revenue, gross revenue minus costs and expenses, right? It's Mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive for them to make magic cards, even specialty magic (laughs) cards. I mean, that's something that they do very well. And they've presumably, you know, over time... Relative... What? Relative to other products that they're competing with in similar markets like toys and games, for example, other hobby products... Cardboard rectangles are really yes. affordable to produce. Yes, they're very <laughs> affordable. You don't need to redesign every toy. You have to have a like a fifty thousand dollar design for every sculpture, right? It's like expensive to tinker with it. Yeah. For magic cards, they've gotten down to a science, I'm sure, at this point, in the sense that they have a printer who can do it in the most efficient and inexpensive manner possible. They probably have, you know, in every respect, ink, paper, every input, right? Yeah, Kevin. So yeah. basic economics says that you maximize profit where the marginal revenue of a, of a product is equal to the marginal cost. What that basically means is that selling an additional unit of something, you set it where the additional cost is. But that's only one way to make a product, and that's in a competitive market. When you're in a non-competitive market, like something like this, where there's an IP involved, or if you have a monopoly, you can set a higher price point and you restrict supply. That's essentially what they're doing here. So there's different mm-hmm. ways to maximize profit. What I want to interrogate for a moment, because I haven't heard anyone talk about this, is how they could have created possibly higher profits in different in different modes of selling this product. So mm-hmm. I assume, let's just start here, that once you've decided to make a 30th anniversary product, and once you've decided the product is essentially going to be in some form a mimic or an emulation of limited edition beta, just those two decisions. You have dozens of options from that point. Literally mm-hmm. dozens. You can do packs. You can do box sets. You can do dist- you know for different kinds of. You could do like a from the vault prizes. Yeah, different prices. You have you could do a from the vault type thing. You could do something like this. There's so many different ways to go. Right. You could create starter decks. Yeah. You could create boost. Anyway, I think it's very yeah. interesting, and I assume that they had lots of different 
voices and perspectives going into the decision matrix, right? I assume that yeah. the product brand managers are involved and also the marketing wizards and other people are involved. I find it interesting mm-hmm. that, let's start with this. What if instead of creating the display set that has four packs, they had said we're going to sell individual boosters at $250 a piece. I think that it's possible. Now, I want to know if you agree or disagree with me, that they could have a higher sell-through rate It's selling individual boosters than box products because, now you might say it doesn't matter because they're going to sell out on this product regardless, <laughs> right? Like whatever the print run is. Potentially. Yeah, but there's a, it's possible that they won't though, right? It's possible that, I mean, it's possible this thing will sell out within minutes. It's also possible it will mm-hmm. sell out within hours. And it's also possible it will sell out within days, if not weeks or months. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. The way that they set it yep. up, they assume, it seems as if they are assuming this thing is going to sell out very quickly because the orders are going to be received, they said, quote, this year, right? Which means that this isn't something they're going to be selling through the holidays because to receive the orders, that means there has to be a cutoff point of like probably early right. December, right? <laughs> they're expecting the door to close pretty rapidly after yes. the sales go so online. So clearly the goal here is not to maximize the product sell sale, right? The goal is to maximize essentially the marginal revenue of the product. I just mm-hmm. am really curious. It, it seems to me that if that's the case, they made a, deci- they de- they made a decision that said $1,000 is the maximum price point we can charge for this. How can we make the most out of this, right? Um, at that price point with whatever the fixed number of, of print run we're going to produce. I, I think that's, that's the mm-hmm. only logical way they landed this. Because it seems to me that if they had decided to put this into like starter decks or booster packs and disaggregated the product in a smaller indiv- in other words I'm probably not going to buy this I'm I'm almost certain the only reason I would I would purchase this product Kevin is just to squirrel it away and then resell it years later you know for yeah. a greater profit and I, I, I yeah. do, let me just ask you straight up and then I'm going to finish my point do you have any intention of purchasing <laughs> this product I'm less than 50% but not zero. But if they um, had sold, I'm still thinking. If they about had it. sold individual boosters at 250 a piece, would you have bought a, a booster? I would be more Me likely too. to have spent. And I yes, imagine the answer is probably yes for most of our audience because for it's more likely, not saying they were going to for most of our because you can buy one booster and just hold it as a collector's item. Oh, here's a cool collector's item. I'll just put this in my collection and not even necessarily open it, or maybe open it on a special occasion, right? Yeah. And to your point, $250 as a purchase amount is much more in line with other common magic yes. <laughs> purchases, right? It's much closer to a booster box or a collector's box, which regularly go for yes. between one one and 200 bucks, right? It's much more in line with customer expectations, even though it's it's only a single pack, which is laughable, yes. of course. But I agree with you that the, the order of magnitude increase from like a hundred or a $200 booster box, which people are used to, to a thousand dollar product is just, it's so jarring. So what I'm saying here is they could have designed this product in ways that would create a lot more volume of sales, right? That's, so it's, yes, I think that's absolutely clear that they're not going for volume of sales. They're going for, again, maximizing the marginal revenue for the product and therefore the profit for the corporation, which by the way, is, is unhappy as a lot of people are, I think is a logical goal for a corporation, which is to maximize profits. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk about how this lands and why some people are, are upset about whether it feels inclusive and so forth. But first, 
Do you have anything to say about the economics that I just mentioned? Um, just that uh, I want to be careful to point out that we don't think that maximizing profit is the only goal that one no. should have. And I'm not saying um, that's the only product goal, by like the way. This. I'm just saying it's the, it's the <laughs> yeah. primary and, goal. Yes. Yeah. And also not that it is implicitly good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a lot of, there, there are a lot of folks out there who are quick to point out, like, they can charge what they want for this because it's going to sell out anyway, so whatever. And I think that reaction has some clear truth to it. it like, it could be a tautology. Like, it's sometimes it's stated as though it is virtuous in a way. I don't mean to imp- I don't mean to say that everyone who makes that statement means it's virtuous. Just that it is stated in a way that some comes across as virtuous in some contexts when it is I would argue far okay. from that. Well, like it or not, <laughs> we live in a capitalist society. And so in a capitalist society, uh, that's absolutely and in a capitalist true. society, corporations that are publicly traded like Hasbro have a duty to <laughs> maximize shareholder profit. Yeah. And and that well, sucks. And, well, uh, <laughs> I am I'm not an anti-capitalist, but I will say that um, I think there is a danger in any profit-seeking endeavor, which is is that there's a trade-off between exploitation and sustainability, right? Like if you exploit your customers so that you impoverish them, <laughs> then they mm-hmm. can't actually generate revenues for you in the future. And corporations are not just about revenue in the moment. They also need revenue over time. They maintain jobs and payroll and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's it's possible that maximizing the profit for a product creates bad will and antipathy that causes players or whatever to, to bleed away okay let's let's let and, go ahead i i want to pivot to i want to pivot to a hypothetical i thought of that i think is an important principle mm-hmm. here but i want to finish this thought go ahead yeah i i just want to say i think there is a possible conclusion that is born out of what you just said and it's simply that this product could sell out and be a success at face value and yet still be a net negative for the company and the products and future products and its customers i think is a a, a reasonable summation of what you're getting at there's no guarantee that just cuz this sells through yes. it's necessarily yes. a good I, thing i hear that and i i can imagine someone making the argument you just made i don't think that's very persuasive mm-hmm. i don't think that that this product is is going to alienate, let me be really clear, could alienate, but is going to cause anyone to quit magic. <laughs> I just don't think that, I think, I, think, I think the chances of that are extremely low. Okay, let me pivot to something though that's very important. <laughs> Suppose, and I'll start with the hypothetical or thought experiment to illustrate the point. Suppose Wizards of the Coast decided, Kevin, that they were going to print as a single direct-to-customer, direct-to-order card specialty magic card that would be only legal in eternal formats for a thousand dollars and suppose further that this card would be an immediate vintage staple okay how would that land for you and how is that different very 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 badly and but why (laughs) it would be much worse than this product um because like it or not magic is still not completely like pay to win um to the highest degree Magic is is a luxury product. It is an expensive hobby, and especially if you want to compete in like multiple formats or a rotating format, like it costs a lot of money. But that kind of naked pay-to-win kind of aspect, where something was a staple, and you probably need four of them, right? Given the nature of how Magic goes, unless it gets immediately restricted, um, that kind of thing would be above, uh, significantly above a bar for you know draining and exploiting funds from your. Yes customers let, and i would be very much let me be against devil's that. advocate for a moment i i agree with you but mm-hmm. some would say that that is contemporary vintage right now that 
instead of buying cards directly from wizards in that way, you need to mm-hmm. buy the game objects, whether it's for bazaars or workshops or power. It's essential. You have to buy it from the market. So what's the difference between buying it from the market versus buying it from the company? Go ahead. I think there are, I think there are a few, but I think one of the big ones for me is simply intentionality. Wizards does not make yeah. Black Lotus costs what it costs right. today. They have done so implicitly via the reserved list. So there's the yeah, indirectly, but they're not going out and saying card X is for sale for this amount. It's, it's market, it's demand, and it's incredibly, incredibly low supply. And so just coming out and saying, well, uh, in order to play this format, you have to, you know, pay $4,000 to get four <laughs> copies of this card. Um, that was, it's meaningfully different. It's them taking a proactive and purposeful approach to cost a thing at a yes. certain amount. Now, and so for me, I that's agree. a big difference. I agree. I, but I propose not the only difference. It's, <laughs> I propose this thought experiment because I wanted to draw a distinction where I think the red line is and where mm. this product lies. So there's essentially two core communities, and there are many communities, but two core communities in terms of magic products. There's collectors and players, right? And there's overlap between. Mm-hmm. For players, they they have said that they still view Magic as primarily a strategy game. Primarily, it's said they have said that in official documentation, official publication, everywhere. They say yes, it's intended to be collectible, but it's first and foremost a strategy card game. If you mm-hmm. make the game objects essentially inaccessible because of cost, beyond what the market decides, but just as a profit and revenue raising thing, you've you've destroyed the integrity of the game, in my opinion. And it's just for the reasons that you've said, because now essentially they're saying this game is no longer primarily a strategy game. It's how deep is your wallet? And they cannot do that. And so as long as they do not do that, to me, that is the red line. That is the clear, bright line where if they cross that line, that's the Rubicon that will destroy the integrity of their product on the long term. This is different. This is not, not only is it not necessary to compete in tournaments with this it's not even legal for tournaments it's purely a collectible product (laughs) except for the fact that i imagine old school tournaments will permit this but that's not sanctioned so go ahead uh and they're not the only ones too i mean um official or or not edh players will play these cards too but that's not the same thing as old school tournaments which you were just saying it's just closely related in terms of uh community adoption but we'll get back to that in a little bit i want to I want to stress test one of the things you just said a minute ago, and just for purpose of clarity, because I'm I'm like-minded with you in terms of corrupting and, yeah, corrupting, basically, the the integrity of the strategic game that we're all participating in by raising the bar for introduction, that is, accessibility from a financial standpoint. Do you think that they are marching toward that bar? That's what I'm... As, as the days progress with regular products, though, not, yes. not counting this product, but other products. Do you think well, they're approaching is, that bar? Is, so the best way to understand something is by positing the thing in extreme, right? That's why I came up with mm-hmm. an extreme case. And so if we can have clarity about the extreme case, then we can recognize there's going to be some muddiness in in-between cases, right? I think clearly I would be, I would be incredibly angry. If Wizards did what I what I said in the th- thought experiment as a vintage player, and not because I wouldn't ultimately purchase the cards. I mean, I've been on an alpha buying spree during the pandemic, so I would I would <laughs> I've spent a lot more than four thousand on alpha cards. I promise you that. And I am one of the yeah, but you and I I'm are one outliers. Of the, I'm one of the thousand people in the world that owns an alpha Black Lotus, so I'm definitely an outlier <laughs> in that regard. But but yes. the point is the point is that 
there is a point at which I believe the integrity of the game is corrupted by direct-to-market yeah. sale of high-priced cards. And there are there there were points at which I was somewhat concerned. You know, like the Commander products. I think with the first example where we saw, mm-hmm. okay, here's a product mm-hmm. that is not circulated widely. That's eternal legal. The first Commander product, I believe, was one of the first where we had. Was it True Name Nemesis? Remember how frustrating that was? Toxic Deluge and True Name Nemesis Toxic Deluge. were not available. Yep. We were desperately yep. trying to get them right before the Vintage Championship, and we could not get the, right. the copies. That's right. That was a, a very low point in terms of accessibility for the Vintage yes, format. Yes, and they had just come out, and you, we were like, you had to go. Yeah. We, people were we, desperate. We were stopping exactly. at Toys R Us on the drive to yes. Eternal Weekend yes. yeah, um, yeah, to try and play that so, card. I don't know because I am not entirely on top of each of the products, but I could imagine that some of these specialty products are veering in that direction. So part of it, there's there's different variables here that matter, Kevin. So one of the variables, let's just specify what they are, okay? Three, I think there's three critical variables in this equation of the integrity of the game. The first is price. The second is distribution and circulation. And the third is relative importance, Okay. And you can move mm-hmm. up or down the ver- each of those variables and come to a slightly different conclusion. And I, that's why I said, I, I set up my hypothetical very carefully. $1,000, this is going to become a staple and only like, like direct order. So I covered yep. all three of those. Yep. So there was, so, okay, there's circulation and distribution, right? We talked about the commander products aren't, went like Toys R Us, you know, it's like, you know, I don't even remember if you could get them at, at but- card shops. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Commander products are widely distributed. You can get them at yes, big box. So that's stores. wide distribution is, is a factor. And Amazon right? now. That's number one. Number two is price point. The Commander products yep. weren't, there were five different decks and they weren't that expensive. And you, you also knew what you were getting in each one. They were like, what were they? They, they were not randomized, yes. which matters a lot. They were what, like <laughs> $30 a pack? or They they started out at 30 They're up to 50 or 60 depending so on what you look at. Not enti- for a vintage and a, a legacy player, that's not out of the bounds of whatever but for a standard player that may be a little bit more annoying that's it's it's yeah. starting to drift, drift. increase yeah and then yeah. the third factor it's starting well, we, to drift. The, so we, we covered all three the price oh the third factor is the relative importance um unfortunately true name nemesis and specifically toxic deluge was very important at the vintage championship so that was a highly that's important right. card now i'm not saying it's soul ring important but it was very important um so that yeah. was disappointing yeah. but the the one Point beyond the commander products where I got a little bit concerned in the last few years was the Walking Dead product. Where Yep. Another step yeah, along the this next path. Next step along the path where the card, I forget what the card was called, but it, it saw vintage play. And unfortunately it wasn't like a vintage staple or even a role player. But that <laughs> It's like a Vodelian hex catcher <laughs> level. <laughs> oh God. Okay, the Kevin with the callback. Um but the point I'm making is that if they had put I don't remember how much that product was cost costed i don't i remember it not being very accessible in terms of just if it had been highly important in vintage and became a key staple in the best deck that would have been very problematic it had a similar cost to a commander deck but as you're pointing out the distribution channel was much narrower it was only dcc you couldn't go buy it at walmart yeah go ahead yeah uh no i'm agreeing with you i i I feel like you cited an example that i was going to bring up if you didn't the walking dead is a good one the commander decks obviously I've, uh, and I asked you about, you know, are we progressing? Because I genuinely feel, and I, I, I believe that many people already agree with this, I genuinely feel like we're, we're a boiling okay. frog kind of situation well, is- right now, right? We're, we are in the pot and the temperature is rising. Are we at $1,000 for a staple direct-to-consumer? No, we're a ways away from that still. 
but are we moving in that direction and at an accelerating pace? Yes, okay, I believe that so we are. So we both agree that this scenario I came up with is sort of the extreme example, the unacceptable. Where is the uh-huh, line? Uh-huh. Where is the line? And those three variables I said, where is the line? Yeah, it's honestly, it, we are about one, de- one critical design mistake away from it Specify. almost tomorrow. So a like, product that's narrowly they could, circulated that costs... Imagine The Walking Dead, How much right? did that cost? Yeah, 30, um... I imagine I don't remember exactly, but the the cost of those things are generally like thirty MSRP, or forty dollars for a non foil one. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, that's right. But it's direct to consumer, so MSRP applies. I mean, I think there were thirty or forty dollars for a non foil and like fifty or sixty for a foil. I don't remember what the Walking Dead was an announcement, but it's about that range, similar to a commander deck still these days. Um, but I would argue that we are only one critical design mistake and maybe one more price increase away from being very close okay. to the line. Like imagine they they up the price on a secret layer to a hundred dollars, okay. and and they make a design mistake like they did with Flusterstorm yes. for example, and they they print a vintage staple for a hundred the only and the only way you can get it is to pay a hundred dollars per okay. copy. We're not would far from that. Would you find that to be a, we really aren't? As a, would would that turn you off of vintage if something like that happened? Um, it's close. I, I and I only say it's close because we you, all. Kevin, that's impressing. Well, yeah. but the, the the point is here's the, here's the point though. Are you saying that a recently printed vintage staple at $100 is turning me off? Yes. Not quite because of Ragavan. Yes. And Ragavan's still like a exactly. $70 or $80 card that's a vintage staple. But Ragavan staple. was printed in Modern I haven't bought them. 2, which was a widely distributed set. That's that's right. And so that's why I'm saying the economics are still slightly yes. different, but we're approaching the price point where like, even as a, a very privileged player myself from a financial standpoint... I'm still not interested in buying a new card, four copies of something at 100 bucks, And if it was direct-to-consumer only... Yes. I would be very so, unhappy. So this about is what that. I'm trying to drill down, and I'm trying to be as really clear yeah. in each variable as possible. I agree with you. I do. I do not object to a hundred dollar new card. I do not, because I, okay. I, I mean that's just it's going to happen. There are going to be Modern Horizon products that are going to be end up being a hundred dollars because they're played across formats. I accept that. And a hundred dollars is True. not quite what it was ten years ago, too. It's not. You know, it's there's yeah. inflation. There's Agreed. et cetera, et cetera. But but the the water is the, the, the water's boiling. I, I, I right? don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't think the slope is slippery. But the substance of no, I but just, it's not not slippery, but increasing. Yes. What right? what I what I'm trying to get at. Okay, let me just continue to break it down. So I don't object to a okay, card. Okay. I don't object to a, a let's say a card print in the last year that's vintage, more than vintage playable. Say a key vintage staple, costing on the yeah. mark secondary market more than a hundred dollars. I do not object to that. I okay. would object if a card cost more than $100 and suffered because it was a narrow distributed product. What definition of suffering way, let me are you? rephrase that. Um, the, the, rather that the player community couldn't get enough access to it because it was a extremely limited print run product or it was um, extremely narrow in its distribution. So I w- here's what I'd be, let me, well, just, let me give the, you two examples. Let me just give real clear examples yeah. here and then we can discuss these or not. Okay, case A is a $150 card that's printed in Modern Horizons 3 and widely distributed. I'm okay with that. Case B is a $150 card that's printed in a specialty, directed consumer, highly limited edition print run, and you have to buy packs, like let's say five card per pack, and you have to buy multiple packs to try and get it, you know, so you're differentiating between the secret layer model where you get exactly what you pay for yes. 
Yes, I'm trying. What I'm talking but about. I'm, the I'm reason curious, that matters to me. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious though about the the your your terms are confusing me just a little bit because I'm trying to zero in on price. Price is. It sounds like you're setting up two different uh, two different approaches to a product that lands yes, at the I'm same price. Explain, like Ragavan's still so eighty I, I'm bucks. I'm trying to explain control for price in my hypotheticals to show yeah. that the other variables matter to me a lot. The other variables being, okay, the distribution, okay. and the relevance to vintage. Right. It's like if so is. If, if a card, but the impact to you is the same. I no, think in both scenarios, you still have to pay four hundred yes, bucks to get four to copies. Me is the same, but the impact mm-hmm. to the community is different. That's what I'm trying to get at. I see. Does this come back to the intentionality yes. thing that yes. we touched on this earlier? This is what I'm trying to get at. Is that yeah. if mm-hmm. something is hard to eat, like it's like we've talked about how certain cards like Bazaar Baghdad's are just going to have a less appearance at a, at a paper tournament. Because they're harder to get, yeah. there's going to be a higher, um, a higher proportion of bizarre decks in a Magic Online vintage tournament than in a paper Magic tournament, right? Because yeah. of the scarcity of bizarres of Baghdad, you have to have four copies of one of the rarest <laughs> cards in existence, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and likewise Mishra's workshops, although that necessarily hasn't always been practiced, slightly tend to be underrepresented. <laughs> um, the point I'm making is that. The price to me is not the most important variable. Now, it's it, it, most important. I need to be really careful here because I've, I've said there are three variables. It's how important is this to, to playing in vintage and competing. The second is what is yeah. the distribution and circulation method. And the third is the price point. But to me, because vintage is already so expensive, especially sanctioned vintage, the price point is mm-hmm. really the least of my concerns. The integrity of vintage is more likely to be punctured, not by the ultimate price, but by the mechanism by which the card is circulated. And if the mechanism intersects badly with the importance of the card to competing. Those to me, the the integrity of vintage as a format is harmed to a greater extent by those two variables than by price alone in the range that we're talking about. Now you could conceive of a a vintage card that costs a million dollars and then we're in a different a different uh, you know, there's only five of them in existence, and then yeah. we're in a different conversation. So, so those 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 factors do not all scale no. linearly no. with respect to but one you, another. You understand? I, my, that's I, why I, don't I think I would never accuse yes. you of that. Do you understand the point I'm making? I, I, I think I get it. I think I do. I I think I, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I think there are different price points for which the the it feels different. It means a different thing, and those price points vary from person to person a little bit. But there's a pretty stark relief between a hundred dollar product and a thousand dollar product, no doubt. And they hit differently yes. when you, the, you know, the, the the sticker shock is one thing, but upon further investigation, they still hit yes. differently. I, there's one other example <laughs> yeah. I want to bring into the conversation that many people yeah. probably I don't think anyone has brought into the conversation, but I want to bring it in now, and that is mm-hmm. the book product promos. <laughs> Interesting. So Mana Crypt. Interesting. You, there's there's three of them right there's the centaur centaur there's the uh um the dragon dra- well, the lothi dragon the lothi dragon was actually not quite it was actually a dragon con promo for a for a tournament originally and then it was late and then they distributed yes. them more yeah. mana crypt the centaur and the badger and then i think the sewer of Stark. Yeah. i can't remember why but anyway mana crypt yeah. mana crypt what the card arena, arena. that was it. it wasn't sewer yeah was it yeah sewers of Stark and arena yeah. okay so there's a number of them um <laughs> Mana Crypt ended up being in in Type One circa 1996 a, a real staple. It was the key card in the Prosperity deck yeah. for for Type One, yeah. and then has become subsequently a staple in, in Vintage today. 
and EDH. And EDH. Mana Crypt is an interesting card because it's a very unique distribution model, right? You have to buy a book, but you can there's an unlimited number of books. You can just buy, you know, it's not like they they and then they also even years later there's still stacks of Mana Crypts that haven't been distributed. So there was not like a limited print run, right? <laughs> so it's a it's yeah. It's it's one of the it's variables weird. I talked about, which is limited circulation, but there was not a limited print run as high relevance to vintage and in its initial distribution very low cost now it's a $250 card to get the original manicure. I think the the reprint is like 180 or something on eBay but uh, um the the prices are higher than what you were No remember, I, I looked still, I, I've, I've been room. monitoring manicures because I want to buy more manicures for old school decks um I, oh, I think well, on eBay, I've I guess TCG I've is seen, a different I've seen them sell animal. the last 6 months on eBay for around 250 to $300 so Okay, you're right. You're right. The low condition yes. ones are in that range. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm trying. I want four mana crypts for old school decks. I'm serious. And it's, <laughs> it's a. I should have bought them a while ago. And so anyway, anyway, that's beside the point. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> the point is that um, it's an. It would be if they had a product like that, but but it was you know direct to consumer, which is essentially what mana crypt was. High, high mm-hmm. um, importance. It's hard to compete with a lot of decks without a mana crypt. You can't play an optimal workshop deck without a mana crypt. You can't play an optimal tinker deck without a mana mm-hmm. crypt. Just impossible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't play an optimal tog deck. Remember, psychotog deck back in the day, or a gifts deck, or a yeah. control yeah. slaver without a mana crypt. But if and, and the same goes for competitive right. EDH too. You can't play but, most competitive EDH. But if decks the book had cost two hundred dollars and there were only you know a limited print run, fifteen thousand of them in existence, people would be furious, and I would be furious. You know, if if that, yeah. yeah, the point you see the point I'm making. How, how does all this relate? How, tie it the, back the to the new product. The point I'm making then. is that people, a lot of people, are very upset about this product, and they're upset yeah. because they, for a variety of reasons. But one is that it feels exclusionary, which it is. It's economically mm. elitist. It is. It is exclusionary, but it does not cross the red line, in my opinion, for players, which is destroying the integrity of the game as a game, because they haven't. Mm-hmm move the variables in the way I said. And now you call it a boiling frog. I don't, I think what it is, it's a path. It's a slope. It's a <laughs> slope in a particular direction. But I've never liked, I've, I, I've never liked the slippery slope argument because the slope may not be slippery. They may be quite intentional about where the line is. And I, and I, I've yeah. always, that's why the slippery slope argument is a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy because the slope is not always, always yeah. slippery. And, and I, well, and I don't, I don't mean to progress. But, I, I would never introduce a slippery did. slope the argument. But you did. The boiling frog is, is another version of that argument. The boiling frog is not a slippery slope argument. You, They're two different the boiling things. Frog, like the, the point, ahead. the boiling frog is about perception of change. Okay. That's, that's it's meaningfully different well, I, than slippery slope. What, what, that's the thing. The boiling frog is that something is happening and you didn't notice yes. it. Analogy, not the slippery part. Where what's next? It's about. This has been happening, well, all- and we didn't realize it, and we're already on the path. You used it as a path. It's a perfect example. But the point is, we're not at the start of the path. We're on it. We're, we're part yes. of it. Well, you know, we're on it, well, and we the, have been for the, a while. The, all metaphors are imprecise, but the boiling frog metaphor also implies <laughs> that the harm is accruing. We just don't know it. In other words, the frog being I, the integrity. And that's how I feel. And I, what I'm saying is I don't feel that way because we don't yet have the product that, that, that crosses my red lines. In the on the three variables I just mentioned, isn't it fair to say though that the harm that in the ways that you're measuring it is certainly not binary? No, no harms are not necessarily right? binary. That's true. Harms can be gradients. Yeah. Okay. they can so, be degrees. Yes. Well, and that's that's what I'm used. That's what I'm referring to when I use this analogy. Is simply that 
the game has less integrity no. but measured in the ways that you are measuring in the ways that you're measuring it it has less integrity than it did 10 20 okay. years ago i would argue well, we're charging way more for the product it's way more yes. exclusive as a luxury good to play any format you have to pay more than you did 10 or 20 years ago Even by a long for shot inflation. like yes. Exactly. So along all of the dimensions that you are equating it by, and I'm not trying to make like a definitive point in time, I'm just saying that along every measurable dimension, the game is losing integrity. Well, okay, okay, okay. That's the Hold analogy. On. Yeah. I can agree that the ordinary product of Magic is more expensive. Now, I don't know what the average standard deck costs relative to inflation today versus what it cost 10 or 20 years ago. My sense is that... Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, the average standard deck probably cost around $200 to assemble, a decent standard deck. I don't know what it costs today. My guess is that it's probably not, (laughs) but is it substantially more, double that, closer to a thousand? What? It it is, but also bear in mind that standard is not the only format. Certainly. But that's usually the entry. So so the analogy breaks down. Yeah. But it's considered the entry level constructed format. So. Uh, Yeah, except not everyone enters that way anymore. So let's just. I don't want to okay, debate that part. Look, there are formats that exist today that are way more expensive that didn't exist yes, back then. But they're also and they're the they're more also popular more formats, formats, and vintage is far more expensive because. Okay, look here's here's. Yeah, but modern is a, is is complicating this analogy historic, too much. Et cetera, et cetera. Okay, look, and EDH That's obviously right. is the most played format, which was not the case twenty years ago. Okay, let's let's just naturally be really clear. The harm you said the harm to the game by the increasing cost playing magic i'm willing to grant that that might be true but we are talking and all the other we are talking specifically about this product the 30th anniversary edition product and my point is that i do not believe that this product in any way directly impugns or undermines the integrity of the game i do not believe that despite what people are saying now if someone wants to make the argument that it indirectly does because it establishes a precedent that would be built upon I think that is a reasonable mm-hmm. argument. However, precedent is just that. It doesn't mean it's the same thing, right? It's not an equivalence. <laughs> it means that it's... And so I think the principle is different because it's a reasonable argument, but it's also a potentially flawed argument because the next product or the product that would broach my red line would ha- have to be tournament legal. And as long as that line is never crossed with a product of this type, mm-hmm. I do not believe that the integrity of... Let me finish the statement. I do not believe the integrity of the game is harm, period. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's reasonable, but that wasn't the point no, I, I was know. making. But, I was but, going back to the, but, the boiling analogy. My point is that you have articulated a few different ways to measure integrity, and they interact, yes. right? Reasonably so. I believe that you can, you can quantify that across every one of those dimensions, we are losing integrity and have because of the, the nature of the product in different ways. Like, the cost is obviously rising, the direct to consumer part is one of was one you know the distribution method we have we have obviously introduced and are currently suffering from more and different limited distribution methods that that contribute to the lack of integrity like i'm not i'm not trying to convince you that we've crossed yes. the line i'm trying to contribute that at, at every dimension we are moving toward okay. the line well, measurably that's it, all so to obviously metaphors are imprecise but the boiling frog metaphor yeah implies that the, the the frog is the product and the harm is the death of the frog and the frog doesn't perceive it. And so what I, in terms of the metaphorical Granted. mapping, what I thought you were saying is that the frog is magic and the harm and the, the, the magic is going to be killed, meaning the integrity is going to be destroyed. 
And to say that the frog is boiling, wait, wait, wait. I, to say that the frog is boiling is to assert that this product is evidence on a trajectory that the game is being, the integrity of the game is being destroyed. We just don't see it yet. And I, that I don't agree uh, with. That's what I was contesting. Well, that, that is still how I feel. I do believe that we are chipping, we are eroding the integrity of the game and we've, we have been doing so for a while. You have articulated what I think are some, some reasonable approaches to quantifying and measuring and stating your own opinion of the integrity of the game. I agree with many of them. I believe it's more dire than you're uh, accounting okay. for. However, I also agree that this product is not the thing that yes. crosses the line, but it has characteristics sure. and is evidence to continued so, approach. So let's, of I, I, what I want to understand more from you is where, what precedent yeah. this, let's talk about the precedent now. What sort of, we, yeah. we've given, I've given a number of hypotheticals. What do you see as things that might be down the path that this proceeds? Go ahead. Uh, the price is a big one, of course, possibly the biggest. Um, but limited distribution, to use your examples, is a big one, right? But like for what? Like eternal products? Um, now, um, like like layer products? Um, what what products are you envisioning? Well, every every magic product is an eternal product. In <laughs> not a sense. true, but okay. <laughs> I mean, in in a this sense, is not like, an eternal product. But go ahead. Well, um, that is intrinsically tied to the notion of legality, yeah, of though, right? Let me put it to you in a different way. Will players use these cards to play yes. magic? Every example of that will be in eternal format. I just want to know what you see as products. That, where, what, do you, what do you foresee? If you well, see this the, as what dire, I foresee is tell me what's coming. <laughs> um, what's, what's coming is, is the thing that you fear. What's coming is increases in products, increases in, in, in prices of products. I'm not saying everything's going to be $1,000 next year, but you know, products are going to get more expensive. This product will be used by folks at Wizards and Hasbro to justify cost okay, increase. What is a what is a regular booster cost right now? A, a standard legal There are like there are like four different answers to that question, but if you're talking yes. about standard, I think it's Is it 499? Uh, it's it's 4 499 I think. And then the Modern Horizons um, packs were like They don't have MSRP anymore. or 799 or something like that. <laughs> no, the old ones were. I mean, we've got booster products at 5 bucks, at 15, at 10 bucks, at 15 bucks, at 25 bucks and wow, at 100 bucks. I did not know that. We've had booster, yeah, I mean, Double Masters Collector's Edition Boosters I, Packs I were $100 know. a piece. Okay. They have a product at every okay. level, and now so we have a $250 really you know, marker. different market segments in a powerful way. Um, Very much so, and that again, number goes up. The key thing to me is the integrity of the formats and accessibility of the cards. The price, if you price yeah. products in certain ways, but the cards on the secondary market are still relatively accessible you know, and widely circulated. Well, I, I'm not and, going to really strenuously. And, oh, I'll say that. And I think, yeah, and I think that... I would encourage you to see the ways in which integrity has already been compromised. Do you believe not, that Magic's I'm not trying to tell you to change your mind by by its product prices, by Wizards' product price pricing? You're asserting a little, a little bit? bit, yeah. Be clear a and a little bit and increasingly okay. so. Well, yeah. I mean, has it been has integrity been reduced? Yes, in the ways that we've been quantifying it in this discussion. Okay. Absolutely, integrity has been reduced. The game is already predatory to its customers at face value because of the randomized product but distribution. That was true in Alpha. The impact of it. <laughs> and I, I know, but the point is that's it's already has a predatory baseline and increases in price increase that I, loss I just of totally integrity. disagree like, with that. I think the word predatory is well, too but is you, too judgmental. I think that the whole idea Think about think about every tournament report you've ever read where someone said I played this version of this deck because this is all I had. Yes. 
right? You, um, of all people, have read zillions yes. of tournament reports throughout the history of the game, and you have seen yes. that phrase. It's a, it's a joke in old-time Magic players, quote-unquote, all yes, I had. but that's right? because... Like, you see that written in deck Kevin, lists. That's be- that, is, that speaks to the fundamental nature of the game, you know, having a baseline of integrity. Okay. The, the model of the distribution of the game has a baseline of, of integrity that is not pure. Okay, okay, I look, is what let me, would let say. me make... I, don't, I do not yeah. think that you can make an argument that assails the integrity of magic if the pre- one of the premises of your argument is a feature of the game in its original formulation. I'm sorry. I just... like Any feature that's, of the... That's... that's, that's a, you're setting up a tautology. Yeah. Like, the game is not yes. pure from its start just it's because never of, of how it started. And I'm always... I have always been... Look, I've always been a proponent of making the game more yeah. accessible. I've always been a proponent of 100% proxy tournaments. I've always been a proponent of abolishing yep. the reserve list. Yep. I am always a proponent for more inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. However, I disagree, and I think you, I think I totally disagree by saying the original product is predatory. I think the randomness of the packs was actually a strength of the game, not a predatory feature. Because remember. The original game was not designed primarily to be played in tournaments. It was designed to be an experience. There is a lot of social psychological evidence that human beings enjoy surprises. There's there's folklore research, there's narrative research, there's research that human beings enjoy unpredictability, that it's part of fun. And opening packs that's random. No, this is an important point. This is not a small point. That, that the randomness of the packs was actually part of the fun of the game. And that it was not designed that everyone would have a full collection. The Original, it was, remember, it was limited. That, that hold on, serves, it was limited edition. That serves it was my limited point. edition. That serves my point. Yeah. That dopamine experience that you're describing is precisely the thing that the structure of the game predates it, on. I, it charges you money for that experience. <laughs> that's, that's not pre- look. That's a that is a sale. That doesn't make it predatory. Predatory is a very it, very low. It, it does when it preys. Very low. Yeah, I, uh, look, I get it, but. The, the experience that you're talking about is the thing that the product, the randomized product predates on. You're talking about like, and it's not as a slot the price machine. increases. I don't think it's the same. It's not, in my opinion. But go ahead. It's, you think, you're saying it's a slot machine, that packs are a slot machine. How do you differentiate between the experience of a randomized result on a machine and a, and a randomized result from a pack? The difference is that when you, when you play slots, you are trying to hit a winning. You're not acquiring game parts that you then own. When you own the thing, like when you when you lose at slots, you I, get nothing. You just put money into the thing. You actually are buying a product. Yeah, but I think that's an that's an inc- I think that's an incredibly narrow and naive <laughs> differentiation. When you're buying this product yes. right here and every other randomized magic product, you are trying to get that hit. Yeah, you come away with a non-zero amount if you lose. You don't like you get cards you want, you need. Yeah, Steve, Steve, if you open a life lace out of this product, you lost. Okay, the logical conclusion of your view is that selling randomized booster packs is inherently predatory and i just don't agree with that i think that's well that is my position and we can we can move past this and agree to disagree but there's no arguing the fact that the cost of participation in that system predatory or not has been steadily rising i agree right i mean well and that that is a proxy for the cost of participation in in the game itself though was the increase in the all the different formats remember was it two years ago they increased the msrp on on packs from three ninety nine to four ninety nine, 
the, the most basic boost. Uh, that has happened several times incrementally. Yeah, it used to be like $2.99. I think you're, 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 you're forgetting yeah. a few. Yeah, that's happened like but half those, a dozen times at least. But the most part, those... But they've layered in additional so different types of striations of product, yeah. I got you. But my guess is that I, I would not be surprised, I mean, if essentially those prices have roughly kept pace with inflation over the last 30 years. Uh, I think you're in for a surprise then. <laughs> I mean... Well, four ninety nine is is probably not significantly more than two ninety nine was twenty twenty years ago. <laughs> well, if you utilize that as the only metric, I would say yes. But if you were to average out the I aggregate cost of participating in Magic, given all the new yes. striations of cost, then it has okay. definitely outpaced That's inflation fair. strongly. I yeah. mean, yeah. There's um, but we're getting we're, we're getting pretty far afield. Like, well, no, because the important point is here. What is the one of the most important questions that this set raises is what yeah. are the implications for the future of magic with this product? And we are, we are for the first time explicitly trying to tease out where the appropriate line is, where the integrity of the game, and specifically the game that we care about, which is eternal formats and specifically, yeah. specifically vintage, where that is assailed. And, and I just want to point out that uh, while I agree with a lot of the ways you measure this, and I agree that also measuring a thing in extreme to try and set a boundary yes. is totally you know, valid and, re- and relevant and it's illust- illustrative of various things. I just want to posit that the game, that different people are going to have yes. wildly different assessments of, of where that yes. integrity line is. And for some people, it, we have already passed it. But, but it, couldn't, it cannot be for this product is what I'm saying, for vintage players. Uh, no, but this product adds more people to that bucket. Okay, then for the people that you have in mind, where was that line crossed? Yeah. Tell me exactly. Uh, I, I, I cannot because well, it's a spectrum. A, like, for, okay, for one type then, give me an so example. Like, where you think. Well, you, the, the, the Double Masters booster product. That doesn't affect vintage though because there was no new vintage cards in that set. They were all reprints. Well, okay. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna carve We're out about things, the, then I'm gonna have to give another answer. I mean, like you asked who for who was that line cross, and I'm it's saying true. it's true. I, I had in mind implicitly, I had in mind vintage players, though. But go ahead. Well, then, double, then Modern Horizons Two is a good okay. example. Incredibly expensive randomized booster product, like prices way above what they've been in the past. You know, pre- past year old two ninety nine model, right? Like they just keep ratcheting up the price on that that product, which, by the way, is marketed for its power right it's 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 really it's really pushing the definitions of the things you've already you know said are objectionable like it is you need these cards to participate in these high-powered formats and we're caught and we're charging you like three to four times as much or more i'm looking online the booster box so the right now on tcg player an unopened modern horizons pack is 917 i don't really consider that to be past the line of integrity for a specialty product yeah. Look, I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying for some people it has. For some, Fair. That's, I, I that's got all. it. I got it. I, I was going to yeah. start with my point, uh, but I was going to say I could see how some people would be annoyed with that. Now, the thing about it yeah. is that for any given set, there's usually only a handful of vintage playables. For Modern Horizons, totally agree. it's slightly more than a handful. <laughs> it, it was, was it above, was above a, average yeah, on purpose. It was closer to yeah. like a dozen yeah. playables, if I recall correctly. And, and, a, and I, I just want to throw out there, and I know that probably a lot of our audience is vintage players, like, obviously. I, I just want to throw out a sympathetic ear that we are, like, the one percenters of magic. Vintage, right? yes. Something vintage. that we're still kind of... a vintage player, you're already in, yes, the elite of magic. Yeah, so our audience, people hearing my voice right now, 
are probably strongly skewed towards people who are like, ah, I guess Ragavan's okay, but it's not too bad. You know, like there are a lot of people out there for which Ragavan has already crossed a lot. Okay, fair like, enough. I, I can't, I can't play modern when you know when I have to switch between two decks means paying five hundred bucks. Fair like, there, there are, there are thresholds that have already been crossed. But I don't mean to pr- to tell any one person where their threshold should be. Like I would never, I would never propose to do such a thing. And I also want to point out something that you said a minute ago, which is that you and I have always been proponents of accessibility. Yes. I like to tell people when they say vintage, oh, that's the one where I'd have to sell my car to play, right? No. For years, decades even, vintage has been one of right, the most accessible because it, formats it, it <laughs> because proxies. of the community embracement yes. of proxies. Yeah. So. And so when, when you ask me, for example, about my opinions of this set and what it pretends and stuff, I am, I am very you said mixed. You, did, you said the situation is dire. That was your word. Okay. I do. Dire I think it's means dire. that it's I think it's a, dire a, a because alarm fire. It's it's <laughs> I mean that I think that this the the success of this product and I do predict financial business-wise success for this product. I believe the success for this product is going to be used to justify a lot of increasingly expensive things. The and, question for me that and things that are increasingly the exclusionary. For me, I, okay, I think we can wrap up this segment and move on to the next. Yeah. I think the question will I then agree. be I agree with you. I think that the success of this will lead to more products of this type. And whether it's the 35th anniversary, mm-hmm. the fourth, 40th anniversary, the 50th anniversary, or other specialty products. It, it won't you take know, that long, but yes. <laughs> the, the question is going to be whether the brand manager can hold the line at making these products non-tournament legal. And number two, whether they introduce new cards. And because, because <laughs> if they introduce new cards that are incredibly important in tournaments, that is where the line is going to be. My red line is going to be broached. And I don't know exactly where to draw the line. I can't tell you. I could say, you know, because you have to tweak all three variables. There are three different knobs that create different outcomes, right? For me, it would probably be something like a card that costs, like, let's say over $250 is fairly limited in supply (laughs) and is not something that was drafted or gotten out of booster packs, but is like, you know, let's say a A direct direct consumer thing or like basically it's like a a product where the product is like $100, like $80 or more for the product of whatever it yeah. is, whether it's like a, pa- a box or a pack or something. That to me is where, that's roughly where I would draw the line. A r- those Like a, a promo or maybe a, co- a convention like exclusive that. kind Anything of thing? Anything like that. that it's, yeah. it's along the lines I just said. That's where I would start to get really annoyed. And if they did that, yeah, it depends on how important it is. If it's like absolutely tournament staple, I would probably protest by not going to the tournament. Interesting. Okay, let's yeah. pivot. Okay. I mean, you, I've given you where I think the line is for me. And it's not about, again, I want to be clear one last thing. It's not about my personal experience. It's it's nothing to do with my personal experience. It has to do with how I think it would impact the game and the community. That's what I really care about. But there is one other thing I wanted to just mention before we move on, which is that the most frustrating thing in the world is (laughs) not actually price when it comes to something. It's when you can afford something and you can't get it and you want. I think that I think that is the most annoying thing that happened to the Nintendo products, like Nintendo Classic Mini and Wii <laughs> and Sw- I mean Switch and stuff like that, where it's actually very affordable. Like the Nintendo Classic Mini was MSRP'd at like I don't know fifty dollars or something, and you couldn't get it because they deliberately they claim they didn't, but we all know they deliberately shorted the product to create buzz and interest, and then mm-hmm. it was like. It's kind of been Nintendo's model. Exactly, it's like two hundred and fifty dollars on the secondary market. That to me is the most, even mm-hmm. more infuriating than the thing I just said. That is the most infuriating thing as a customer. Now, I want to just clarify: 
as annoying as that is for a customer, that's not necessarily bad for a company. But I do think oh, yeah. that the integrity of the game, I've already said where I thought the, the red line is, and I'm not going to elaborate upon that. So yeah. let's pivot to talking about, Kevin, we're going to cover the reserve list implications. We're going to cover the aesthetics of this product. Hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to foreground you want to cover? Um, let's see. I just I do want to comment on one thing about okay. distribution before we move too okay. much beyond that. And that is simply that um, Secret Lair has been proven, I believe, a success. Now, I haven't seen like I haven't seen literal numbers on it, but it is demonstrably uh, uh, measurable can, in the amount of product that's out in the wild. People's can you just pause for a moment and tell everyone yeah. what I don't not really familiar with Secret Lair, but I assume there's people out there who are not. Can you pause and just tell us what it is yeah. and what the different variants of it are? So Secret Lair is Magic's, Wizards, Hasbro's, not really, but Wizards' first foray into direct-to-consumer in a really formalized and structured way. It's not the absolute first direct-to-consumer thing. Uh, There was some uh, narrow implementations, and I think the Magic Online Redemption program falls under this category. But Secret Lair is meaningfully different in that you can go on, for the first time, go on to a Magic website and buy a specific product that's not randomized and you know what you're purchasing and it's for a fixed price. So it was a new model for them. And in rolling it out, they also introduced a few other things, which is basically the first ever skins for magic cards, like the same card going by a different name or alternate art that was not released in a randomized booster product. You know, new arts for magic cards wasn't new, but this was a different distribution channel for it. And it opened up different stylistic things. And then they started producing mechanically unique th- cards this way. Yes. For the secret layers? So the Walking Dead. So they're vintage? Yeah, they're the Walking vintage- Dead is the classic okay. example, right? Yeah. That was the that was the thing that opened up secret layers to mechanically new cards. Before that, they were just skins, existing cards not functionally different in any way. Walking the Walking Dead was the the beginning of a floodgate of other kinds of brands. Their whole uh expanded brand initiative called Universes Beyond now was facilitated by originally by secret layers. And so their use of this delivery mechanism and this sales mechanism is constantly expanding. But the point is, is that we long ago crossed the threshold of being able to purchase directly at a fixed price from wizards and in a nearly unlimited quantity. It's, it's print to demand, which means if, if 10 people order these, they make 10 of them. And if a million people order these, they make a million of them within reason. They have some kind of ceiling, I'm sure. But the point is direct to consumer. Then they introduced unique, mechanically unique cards. And now they're doing with regularity, mechanically unique cards with non-magic brands on them. Street Fighter. Um, what's the other recent one? Well, Lord, Lord of the Rings, Rings is coming, but that's, that's a unique case. Um, uh, Fortnite was the other one I was trying to come up with just a second ago. They are expanding universes beyond to be more than just secret layers, though, which is the example you just gave. Uh, Warhammer 40k is the fresh new version, right? There are secret layers for Warhammer, but there's also uh, just regular old uh, commander decks sold at Walmart, right? So this is part of a of of a suite of product distribution strategies that includes direct to consumer, but is not limited to. Got it. So what's the point that you wanted to make in relation? Just to that this is a continued extension and elaboration on that strategy but it has some unique features. We've already alluded to it, right? This is not print-to-demand, limited release. So that's new in terms of their direct-to-consumer offerings, uh, unless you count the caveats of convention exclusives, but I, I don't, don't want to go down that road. 
This is a brand new channel, basically. The limited release, direct-to-consumer style, which is not a secret layer, but just an alternate, let's-have-artificial-scarcity kind of approach to things. It's kind of like the year-round convention exclusive, right? (laughs) We could be in an environment where, like secret layers, they announce a new one of these every month going forward. Get your uber secret, you know, short-term foil black lotus. Only one of 5,000, right? Like, that's our future. That's that's what this portends. And it's a meaningful departure from secret layer, in my opinion. Though that aspect is debatable. There are some people who were foretelling this exact thing, or something very much like it, uh, years ago. Literally. (laughs) And to those people I say, your pessimism, I think, has been rewarded. But it's more like your prediction of capitalism has been rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I get your point and I appreciate, I think I get your point that this is a byproduct of the distribution model created by the yeah. secret layer secret. product. Anything else you want to add on that? Uh, no, not on that point directly. Okay. So let's talk about the reserve list and then the aesthetics. Okay. And then we'll wrap. The reserve list is something we've talked Actually. about at length. It is in fact... One of the topics in our very mm-hmm. first episode. So if you want to get grounded on that, check that out. Let me try and give a brief history <laughs> of the reserve. List. Good luck. Okay, I'll try and keep this brief. Is backdrop. So to begin with, Magic was originally designed to be a game that would rotate. So limited edition Magic the Gathering was supposed to be re- replaced in its entirety. Not <laughs> supplemented with expansion sets, but replaced with Magic the Ice Age and Magic the Menagerie which ultimately became Magic, uh, Ice Age and Mirage. And these were all designed or in design and development prior to Magic actually ever hitting stores and shelves. When Magic was a huge success and sold out of its 10 million card print run, limited edition alpha and beta, Wizards decided that they had to immediately get more product to shelves and that led to the expansion approach. Arabian Nights, Antiquities, Legends, The Dark, and Fallen Empires. And they decided to throw out the approach of replacing the entire card pool. So when Ice Age came in, it didn't lead to the replacement of everything before it because they'd printed all these supplemental mm-hmm. sets, right, Kevin? Well, the key turning point was Chronicles, and to an, a greater extent than is widely appreciated, 4th edition. Chronicles was an, a reprint set that reprinted cards in Arabian Nights, Antiquities, and Legends. And it immediately hit and harmed the value of many cards from particularly mm-hmm. Legends. The Elder Dragons, Killer Bees, all of these cards that were rares and fairly ch- sought after became immediately accessible and their secondary market value plummeted of the original cards. And then 4th Edition came out and they printed even more um, cards from the original set, which created a backlash among collectors. And can, so in can the I, wake I just of- want to interject I, that. For those of you who are, don't know and weren't playing or around at that time, I, I do want to set a little bit of historical context in the, the nature of price back then. Like when we talk about the reserve list tanking the value of a card, people would think of dual lands and Moxon and Black Lotus, right? Cards that cost many thousands of dollars. The game was much smaller back then, and so were the economics of it. And so when we talk about tanking the value of, say, Nickel Bolas or Killer Bees, what we're really talking about is taking a card that was maybe 25, 30, 50 bucks at the extreme and tanking it down to a couple of dollars um not all the way to zero and not all the way to one dollar but something like nickel bolas which might have been in that 25 30 dollar range might have been cut in half maybe at that time yes yeah exactly 
You, you couldn't have put it better. I couldn't have put it better. So the myself. scale was dramatically different so, than what we experienced today. Yes, you take a twenty-five dollar card and, and turn it to a twelve-dollar yeah. card. <laughs> Twelve and a half. Which is the sort card. of thing that so happens daily that, in Magic now. <laughs> it, well, it's a fifty percent drop, but yes, it was yeah. specifically yeah. because of the reprint. So, in the wake of that, Magic created a something called a reserve list or a reprint policy, and the reprint policy essentially said that there was. In order to maintain the um, the collectability, not the value, but the collectability is the of the of the of early cards, they promised that they would identify cards that they would never reprint. They announced the first reprint policy on March fourth, nineteen ninety six. This was also printed in the Duelist. I forget <laughs> which issue. I have it. <laughs> I have it upstairs. Um, the this the original list. The original announcement was accompanied by a complete list of cards they would not reprint. It was revised, and basically it was every rare and uncommon that they had not already reprinted in Alpha, Beta, um, Arabian Nights, and, and Antiquities, and Legends from the Dark. So it included, just to be clear, all actually it was all cards from Alpha and Beta that had not appeared in 4th edition or Ice Age. So they included mm-hmm. commons and uncommons. All uncommons and rares from Arabian Nights and Antiquities that had not been reprinted. And all rare cards from the Legends in the Dark. That was the original list. Um, they ended up adding cards from Fallen Empires, Ice Age, and Homelands, which were subsequently released ex- sets. Actually, it's not quite true because Fallen Empires and Ice Age came out before, and all, the, all three of those came out before the announcement. But they ended up basically saying that we're going to continue to add rares to it. Now, obviously, this was a problem because the base sets were made up mm-hmm. of reprints. So they couldn't just keep adding everything. So in t- 2002 was the first revision to the reserve list. Hold on, my dog. That's not coming through. <laughs> okay. In 2002, they made a revision that said that with Mercadian masks, no other sets would be reserved. And in addition, commons and uncommons from limited edition, meaning Jade Statue and stuff like that, would be removed. So they actually removed cards. That's how Jade Statue got what was reprinted. What was it, the ninth edition, Kevin? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I'll find it. Yeah. We covered that. In a, yeah. Um, the only exception that they, they made was that Pharaoh's Ban was reprinted in fifth edition, even though it was mistaken it, by mistake because it was still on the reserve list at the time. So it was removed. And you're right. Ninth edition <laughs> was, was when Jade Statue came back. So that was the first. In other words, they cleaved off a lot of cards and brought the reserve list down to 572 cards, which is, by the way, the size of the... Now, there was another mistake (laughs) that happened. In 2010, they were printing, speaking of printing specialty products, (laughs) they printed a product called Dual Decks Phyrexia versus the Coalition. And um, in the product was Phyrexian Negator. Phyrexian Negator was on the reserve list, but it was printed in a foil form. With alternate art. and With alternate art. What's that? with alternate art, no, no less. So in 2010, they debated a revision. This is, I wrote an article, which is in our show notes, where I visited Wizards. We discussed, you know, obviously, you can, read, you can read about my account. Ben Blyweiss also wrote an account of our visit to Wizards, where we would discuss the reserve list. Um, they, after, after consulting with people, they decided to strengthen the reserve list. So in 2011, they announced revision to the reserve list, that no cards on the reserve list would be printed either in premium or non-premium form. So the premium loophole was being closed 
for the reserve list. Premium meaning foil. And Kevin, I think <laughs> foil. That's the technical yeah. term for foil. Yeah. Because they printed Yawgmoth's Will, I think, was on the reserve list, and they printed it also as a foil, Kevin, yep. if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It might have been a judge's foil, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so the number of cards that have actually been reprinted that were on the reserve list. That that has happened multiple <laughs> times. Uh, Memory Jar, Wheel of Fortune. Right. Uh, there's been several. Right. But those were all premium. Those were all right. through the premium exception. Okay. So in 2016, they, they apparently edited, changed it again. <laughs> And the what they said is that they would never reprint a card in either identical form or functionally identical form, and that there would be no cards added ever again. And again, all no cards from Mercadian Masks or later will ever be reserved. Um, but they would, and that the policy applies both to English and non-English cards. However, this policy is never applied to virtual. <laughs> Naturally. So they can that is allowed the Power Nine to be printed magic. Um, I think that's basically it. I don't know exactly what the changes were in 2016, but they did. It does appear that they made some sort of maybe it's just framing changes, but there was a substantive change in, uh, announced in 2010 to take effect in 2011. Okay, so that brings us to this mm-hmm. product, Kevin. Some people are saying that this product impinges on the reserve. What is the substance of that claim? Well, the reserved list has a has a, a letter and a a spirit. Right, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and the spirit has shifted over time, from the ways that you said, and in some side commentary too, made by Wizards employees. One interesting example of that comes from Mark Rosewater's blog, which is famous for giving a lot of insight both into design but also some philosophy elements of the the game itself and Wizards printing of it. Back in September twenty fourth of twenty seventeen, uh, a blogger. Or sorry, a, a, a reader to Mark's blog asked, if you were to make a cube product, I think clearly enabled non-legal versions of powerful cards that you can't reprint in Black Border as gold barters, wouldn't that be nice? Or maybe something like you make the cube and the website and blah, blah, blah from a from the vault cubes would be fun. Morrow's response at that time, mind you, this is 2017, so about five years ago, we are unwilling to reprint reserved list cards at normal card size, regardless of border or back which is evidence of their thinking at the time, obviously, but it's also noteworthy in the grand history of things because Wizards employees get badgered about the the reserved list on social media all the time, and their frequent stances, I just can't talk about that. I think almost everyone that we've ever heard from opine on the matter in R&D has said that they have a negative opinion of the reserved list. I I don't want to say that scientifically, just that that's the general consensus is that people in the company, don't like the reserved list, but they're bound by it. Morrow has obviously gone on record publicly as saying they're, they're unwilling to do something that this product clearly violates. Normal-sized cards, regardless of border or back. These cards do not violate the written letter of the law, but they clearly violate at least some past interpretation of the spirit of the thing. That's interesting. So, still I muted. Hold on. am unwi- still muted. That's interesting. I'm unwilling to acknowledge that there is a spirit. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'm just unwilling because the reserve list by its very nature is in the form of a very specific promise. And so, and it's essentially a legal document. And that's essentially, the, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if you make a contract with the <laughs> devil, the, 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 it, there's no spirit to the contract. There's the is the details, and that's all that matters, right? It's like the 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 the, the terms of the of the contract. 
But I hear you. I could see how people well, can say it, there's a spirit to it. I'm and, and it's very, it's very clear <laughs> to your point, though. It's very clear that there's a section of the reserved list, the reprint policy that speaks directly to tournament legality. All policies described in this document apply only to tournament legal cards. Yep, that exactly. means that that aspect of it is very clear. But one of the things, and, and I, yes. I don't know if you're trying to go this way, but we have to address it. One of the things that um, is starting to become less clear in the community, and I'm not saying to you or me necessarily, but conceptually in the community, the definition of tournament legality is, be- is becoming blurrier. Now, again, letter of the law versus spirit of the law. What's the definition of terminate legal? I've seen, let's call it discussions, debates, maybe disagreements even, about the definition of tournament legality, right? You and I would point directly to sanctioning. Okay, that's the, a, yes. a, a clear definition. That's what is meant by that. When, when, when Wizards yeah. uses that, that's what they Here's mean. the thing, though. How do you run a tournament if you're an LGS owner and it's Friday night and you've got eight people in your store, right? Well, you've got some options. You can sanction that tournament. It's standard. It's modern. It's draft. Whatever. You go into the event reporter. You take eight people who have DCI numbers. You sign them up and you submit it. That's a sanctioned tournament, right? Well, what if you run a commander pod and you, and, and half your players don't have DCI numbers, right? Was that a sanctioned event? No, obviously not. But guess what happens? That same LGS owner still signs up those other four players for DCI numbers and still runs the event in event reporter and the results still get reported to Wizards. So is that a sanctioned tournament? Not really. Not technically. But it has all the earmarks of an event. You might even you might even give away prizes for that event. You might charge your players five bucks and give away a couple of packs, you know, for fun. Um, the line for sanctioned events is not 100% clear. Some definitions have, are being tested. And some store owners, and I, I don't want to belabor this point, but some people, and store owners in particular, have come out and said, this line is unclear. And it has to do with the ways in which Watsi has marketed this product, and we can go back to the language if we want, in terms of its usability. It's not really for players. It's for collectors, you know? So if a player walks into that, that Friday night EDH pod and they give the, the store owner five bucks and say, yeah, sure, I'd like to play in this pod and maybe win a booster pack, and they whip out this um, you know 30th anniversary Savannah on turn one, are they violating something? I think you would probably say no. Okay. Letter of the law, no, they're not. There are some debates. So I think it's important for our audience to mm-hmm. understand what sanctioning really meant in the early mm-hmm. years. Because most competitive magic, I would venture to say the vast majority of competitive magic, is now under the auspices, competitive magic, auspices of sanctioning in tournament play. That was not true in the first two years of the game. People might not know this. It's shocking now. The reason all TOs had to submit an application to get their tournament sanctioned because the Duelist Convocation, which was just called the DC then, this is before it got the I for international Kevin. The Duelist Convocation did not want to have more than one sanctioned event per day in the same city. Yeah, which is a really fun trivia point. And it took it took weeks to get, you would submit your application and then you had to do it weeks in advance and you would get an official letter that said you could sanction the event. And so today you can go to a convention, play a sanctioned tournament in the morning, play a sanctioned tournament in the afternoon and play a sanctioned tournament in the evening. That's not what you could mm-hmm, do in 1994. Mm-hmm. In 1993 and 1994, you would one go to an town. event, like let's say Manifest <laughs> One per town. You would go to Manifest Destiny, which would be an event in San Francisco, let's say a weekend event. 
you go there Friday, you'd play in a non-sanctioned tournament on Friday, you'd play in a non you'd play in a sanctioned tournament on Saturday, and then you play in a non-sanctioned tournament on Sunday. And the tournament on the tournament on Friday might be 250 card minimum. <laughs> you have to have five cards of each color. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. The tournament on Saturday would then be the Duelist Convocation January 1994 rules. And then the Sunday tournament might be Highlander 100 mm-hmm. card decks. I'm not kidding you. That it was and then the idea is you'd have all sorts of like ancillary mm-hmm. things, right? Around it. But that would be and then also the tournaments by the way, this is more trivia <laughs> than relevance. They'd be they all the sanctioned tournaments had to be um 32, 64, 128 players. You couldn't have anything. It yeah. had to all be power yeah. of 2. So you, and it was it was either double or single it, elimination. It's more of a a gathering so, GP convention event kind of mindset, right? Where the the games yes. are on kind of a, a yes. spectrum of experience. Yes, and the reason I say this is because implicit in the uh, it, they were very clear about this. These ban and restricted list announcements, the ban and restricted lists, only applied to mm-hmm. sanctioned events. They did not apply to non-sanctioned events. And so th- there were all sorts of house ban and restricted list rules that people would use. And in fact, its original formulation they had recommended rather mm-hmm. than mandatory. So and, and and so the point I'm making, the point I'm trying to make is that the original context in which tournament and sanctioning arose was different than what it is now, A, in the sense that sanctioning and tournaments are much more ubiquitous, yeah. right? And number two, and also the structure of tournaments are just different, right? You didn't have to have, you could play with a 30... 33-person tournament today. You couldn't in yeah. 1994. <laughs> and and the other point is that what is meant by a tournament was very clear. When the when Wizard says a sanctioned tournament, everyone knew they were talking about that one event in the six-event weekend. And that's what mm-hmm. they were talking about. And so I actually think that it is, if, if you understand the, the context in which the reserve list was adopted and, and also what, what was meant by a tournament legal and non-tournament legal event, a, a card... I think it's fairly clear how to apply that. I don't think it's as ambiguous as you're suggesting because the only the only reason it becomes ambiguous, one of the main reasons it becomes ambiguous, is because sanctioning is so much more mm-hmm. ubiquitous now. Everything goes into you know you didn't have a direct line to to the internet in 1994 <laughs> on your in a tournament site. You might have had a dial up if you were lucky at a tournament site, but most you didn't have like the tournament reporter constantly feeding back. To the internet, Kevin. You certainly didn't have phones that were connected to the internet, (laughs) mobile phones in 1994. So what is meant by a tournament is tournaments have a broader, both a broader parlance today and sanctioning is is more more widely used, but also has a more specific. So, I mean, a a very particular meaning that's held that meaning. So when Wizards says non-tournament legal, what that means is sanctioned tournaments under the auspices and ages of tournament of wizards organized play. Yep. They can't control anything outside of that and never have purported to. In fact, they've been very clear in the past that they don't want non-sanctioned events to necessarily use their ban and restricted list. They used to say that in the yeah. early days. And uh there's a certain naivete to uh an organization such as the DCI and Wizards by extension um making a statement like that because the flip side is is that players crave standardization. I don't mean to say that everyone only plays standardized or sanctioned formats, just that the community as a whole craves it. When you go to experience magic in a large gathering, it's standardization that puts guardrails on that experience for 
unknown players, new players or players who are not unknown to one another to have uh, a shared experience, right? And that's part of the value that the, the banner restricted uh, policy brings, even for experiences that aren't sanctioned, which is why players in a community craves that kind of thing and craves standardization and craves consistency in the policies and those kind of things. But there's, there's definitely a I've large thought, portion I've, of the community thought, who embraces the, the flip side of that, which is the gathering is what you make it of, it of it. You know, old school, five color, EDH, like all of these things are born out of a desire to have a different experience. I'm not entirely convinced that there is. I think there is an impulse and desire for standardization, but mostly to facilitate competition, not, not for the sake of um, standardization. EDH has demonstrated I think, I think, a, I mean, a significant amount of evidence well, to the gonna, contrary. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to bring up. Is that EDH was the most? It's one. The emergence of EDH is the is the most popular format. Is one of the most pivotal events mm-hmm. in the history of Magic because it's the first format to ascend to that title that is not under the auspices of mm-hmm. the Coast. Five Color tried to do this, but it never hit the mainstream. Yeah. Right? You like like Mox Crystal. Mox Crystal is now what is that a tournament <laughs> legal card? Right? I mean, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like. The point, the point is that EDH did this with outside of the auspices of Wizards and, and only subsequently has become sanctioned, yeah. right? So I think, I, I don't know, I think that it's interesting that you point out that, that Mark Rosewater said that they weren't going to print something like this mm-hmm. and that they did. But I don't see this as a breach of the reserve list, nor it's not an explicit breach, nor do I really regard it as a spiritual breach, I have to say. I do not. I personally do not see it that way. And I, I share your conclusion. I, I also do not believe this is a breach of the reserved list. However, I think that it's more a little more complicated than that, given what I believe this product portends. Because, and I, I don't know if you're ready to get into this here and now, but this is one of the avenues to, quote-unquote, solving the reserved list that players have suggested many times over in many different contexts over the course of the last few decades. This exact implementation is one of several possible solutions that's been bandied about, and I believe that this is legitimately the product of a lot of people. Well, I, I can't say a lot of people. <laughs> it's probably the product of a lot of passion within Watsi, possibly a small audience, possibly a big one, I don't know. But at least it represents, I think, a step down a road to really untying the Gordian knot that is the reserved list. And I am speculating a lot when I say that, I recognize. But this has all the bellwethers of a way out of the reserved list. Say more, because I don't, I don't see what so, you're saying. I, you're being too uh, vague. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. We can get into this. The Steve, you, you have, uh, during this interview, <laughs> during this episode, and many times before, talked about the, the things that the reserved list is and isn't. You used careful language, for example, earlier in this uh, description to talk about the difference between collectability and value, right? The reserved list makes no assertions about the value of a card. Likewise, the reserved list is very explicit, and we just covered it, the fact that it only applies to tournament legal cards. One of the paths around the reserved list is to have a population of cards that were previously not legal and subsume them into the definition of legal. That is one of the avenues around it, um, among many. One of the ways that you accomplish that, like the first steps, required to have that particular solution to the reserved list is to have a quantity, a high quantity of existing cards that satisfy the player base in terms of functioning as reserved cards and have them 
exist in the in the world and then transition them from illegal to legal right it's a multi-step process in order to get to that future state what you have to have is a, a few more tens of thousands of black lotuses out there in some state that doesn't violate the reserve list but are in people's hands you have to have a couple hundred thousand more or maybe a million more dual lands in people's hands but not tournament legal if you can manufacture that point in time that state and then you say oh okay these cards are all now tournament legal that also doesn't violate the reserved list the letter of the law and that is one end around i'm not i'm sorry i'm not tracking i'm not tracking you're saying if you make Imagine- cards that are illegal legal it doesn't reserve right. violate the reserve list i don't see the right. that's I don't see the significance of this product that we're talking about. Imagine it cost one tenth the price and you could buy it at Walmart. And then two years from now, Watsi comes back and says, those are all legal. Now you can play those in tournaments. That would violate the reserve list. Then You're saying because at the point at which they're printed, they're not tournament legal. And then later on, they do not violate the spirit of the, the written law letter of the reserve list, but they could violate the spirit. I believe we're on a road here. I mean, I didn't want to. That is a very, strained in my no, opinion reading no. <laughs> because no, i think that's that really just, naive of you to say well, that it Steve. says <laughs> this is the way it's like saying um I call, mark my words these cards are going to be vintage playable at some future point and it, i bet that point is sooner than you think i'm just rereading the text of the, mm-hmm. the policy again it says reserved cards will never be printed again and functionally identical. these are not functionally identical no they're function how are they they're not, not tournament legal identical you can't play a non-tournament yes, legal card in a tournament. It's not functionally okay. identical. I think, well, the word functional is very important. You're the lawyer. I assume that the word functional. <laughs> yes. And I'm saying that the word functional is syntact- syntactically ambiguous. And I think one very reasonable interpretation yeah. of functionality in the context of magic is how a card works under the game rules. That is what is meant when they issue errata documents when they talk about functionality. There's a different, hold on, hold okay, on, hold on, hold on. But the, tournaments are not in the rules of magic. Exactly. There. This policy does not apply to, to non-tournament the, legal cards. They're in the floor rules. Exactly. I these, understand that. That's part of the other element of the rules. Pop- I'm just looking. I just, I think it is a strained reading to say, okay, well, I'm tr- what I'm trying to find is where it says reserve cards will never be printed again in functionally identical form. A card is considered functionally identical to another if it has the same card type, subtype, abilities, mana cost, mm-hmm. and power, and toughness. It doesn't specify. It does. It doesn't specify in the reserve card definition about mm-hmm. tournaments. It just says in a separate section, tournament legality. All the policies described in this document apply only to tournament legal yeah. magic cards. So I guess, I guess one, you could claim that if they printed the cards and said they're not tournament legal, but they had the intention of eventually making them tournament legal, then you could say that Wizards violated the reserve list policy. It, through a kind of delayed intent. How would you ever prove that? Uh, what you would do is you would subpoena wizard staff, depose them under oath, and then put them on the witness <laughs> stand if you took them to trial. I'm dead serious. You could you could you could submit interrogatories. You could you could subpoena documents. You could. There's absolutely ways to prove that. Okay, and and so when you did that, and their documentation was littered with no we can't make these tournament legal that would violate the reprint policy and mark if mark and when and when the plaintiff's attorney asked mark rosewater in a deposition or whomever was involved in development of these cards was there any intention at some point to make these tournament legal 
and he's under oath at risk of <laughs> perjury. He's going to have to tell the truth. I'm dead okay. serious. I'm, you're not going to lie under deposition. I acknowledge that that is one possible future, <laughs> but which one of us is being, you think, more uh, strained in their, in their prediction? Look, I, the, the, look, here's the problem. <laughs> The fundamental problem is this is reserve list. I, I said that I don't, I don't think there's yeah. a spirit to this. This is not written like a legal document. Uh, it's just not. A legal document would have a lot more clarity and less ambiguity. Absolutely. Uh, and I think I, I, want, I don't have the 2011 text. Yeah. I'd like to look at that. And I'd also like to go back and look at the original text of the 1996. I yeah. have it in the Duelist. But I think it would be a violation. Or, look, all, <laughs> All lo, the, lo, the reason lawyers have a jobs is because text is ambiguous, right? Like, what is unreasonable search and seizure in the Fourth Amendment? That's what gives constitutional yep. lawyers a job: is that you need judges to interpret and you make arguments yep. for and against. I think it is a strained reading to say that wizards can intentionally reprint a card that is on the reprint is on the mm-hmm. reserve list with the intention of eventually making it tournament legal and not be deemed to have violated the reprint policy. I think that's strained, not naive. I really think that's, that's well, strained. I mean, you're entitled to your assessment of things. Um, and obviously, this this kind of thing could inst- and maybe would be challenged in court, granted. And obviously, I don't know. It is my prediction. Yeah. It's, it's it is my prediction it's that, an intriguing that point. this product <laughs> is the beginning of a trend. Um, Evan Irwin was very clo- very careful and quick to point out in uh, in Twitter shortly after this announcement he said, "What's the over/under on five years? Uh, five years before we see non-tournament legal versions of these other cards?" And he posted Chains of Mephistopheles, Bizarre Library, and Tabernacle. <laughs> well, I, I take the under on that. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna have we're gonna have the follow-up to this product soon. They're not gonna wait till the 35th anniversary. Probably. Yeah, it might be at yeah, the end of the 30th right. year. You're gonna well, be able to get like a gold-backed a, yeah. library within a couple of years in the same delivery okay. mechanism. Point well, is, here's what you do, Steve. We're gonna get to aesthetics here in a minute. You announce this product real high, real high, and you say it's exclusive. Oh, it's a celebration. It's a commemoration. Oh, you got to get yours. And then a year or two from now, you go like, you know, here's, here's another version. You know, it's, it's a little different maybe. And, and maybe, maybe it costs a little less. Maybe it costs a little more. I don't know. But here's another one. And then you know, the next year, you're like, oh, you know what? You liked that last one. Here's, here's the one with new art, the Magic Online art. You want, you want to get the alternate art Lotus? Buy this one. You chip away at it. You introduce more and yes. more. Maybe the price goes down for some versions. Maybe it goes up. Notice there's no foils in this set, right? So now they've opened themselves up to charging two grand for the foil version. Point is, this is an entry point. <laughs> this is this is the this is the wedge that gets more and more lotuses and more and more volcanic islands into the market. It could be. There- it could be. It could be. I, I think this goes back to something we said at the beginning, which is that the print run is too small to actually do that in a meaningful way or significant way. Yeah. This is the tip of the spear. No, the tip of the spear means that there's a lot more, a lot more coming behind it, guaranteed of this of these cards. I think yes, alternate art versions, alternate printings, foils, galaxy foils, different uh, art. Kevin, you're you're talking about two different things. It's all the same. I think it's all Black Lotus. It's not the same. Library of Alexandria is not the same as Black Lotus. It's all different. IP. This is the the reserved list IP that they haven't been able to financially profit from for years. You're all over the place, man. I, the I, got, I got, I it's got the, the broader same, point. You see this? You see this is the is the is the kind of the loophole that can begin to erode the the reserve list. Look here. Here's something I wanted to say. 
In 20, on September 9th, 2020, I posted this on Twitter. I said, if Wizards of the Coast announced an intent to abolish the reserve list, but had no immediate plans to reprint any reserve list cards, and if they did, would likely be in premium specialty versions, what would happen on average to the price of a reserve list card 90 days after mm-hmm. that announcement? And I got a spectrum of opinion. I, I left, I had these four options. It would increase 1% to 20%, would decrease 0 to 5%, Decrease 5 to 20%, decrease 20% or more. 24%, it was basically across the board, but 24% of people thought it would the prices would actually mm-hmm. increase 1 to 20%. 23% of people said decrease 0 to 4, 5%, and 21% said decrease 5 to 20%. The point is that the real... So what people really care about, it, Wizards doesn't say this is part <laughs> of the policy, but what they care about is the price of the cards. That was the impetus yep. for this, right? We talked about the beginning, what happened yep. to Nicol Bolas. The... If Wizards announced that they were abolishing the reserve list, but explicitly said, we are not going, we've abolished the reserve list, but we have no plans in the next two years to mm-hmm. reprint anything. And if we eventually did reprint anything, it would primarily be in mm-hmm. a premium form, specialty form, or hard to get form. What kind of immediate impact would it have? Would there be any case of promissory estoppel and damages? All lawsuits, especially breaches of contract, require mm-hmm. damages. And I think what scared Wizards is that especially as prices were escalating in the later mm-hmm. late aughts, that the potential liability for damages was go- growing larger and larger. Then, of course, in the last 15 years, it's growing yep. much larger still and could be very large. But in order, this is the point I've always made. You have to prove damages. If you don't actually have damages, then you don't actually have liability. <laughs> I mean, you have liability, yeah. but there's no we, cash We've covered this in prior right? shows. It's like, yeah. Yes. The... So this set, it seems to me incredibly unlikely that this set is going to put any downward pressure whatsoever on anything that's being reprinted. It would be, it would be really reprint. speculative. And that goes back to the reason for the price, which you asked me at the, at the top of the show. What do I think the factors yes. were? Because it's too damn well, that's, expensive. And that's why I said I think the, the cost yeah. of a collector's edition set is, was a large factor in setting the price point for this. And I think a lot of statisticians in the community have demonstrated that for in other ways. So let's deconstruct the demand curve for Black Lotus. You basically have collectors. You have old school players. You have people who are fans of Magic and just want to own one. You have vintage players. I guess set, I already said set collectors. That's pretty much yeah. it, right? So if you are just need a Black Lotus for old school, <laughs> let's say, this is Black Lotus is going to be basically in the same price range as the CEIE version. So you might be contending. I don't, God, I, I don't really know what Unlimited Lotus goes for today. But it doesn't seem to me that, let's just say that there's about 18, let's say there's about 20,000 of these that are printed and then 50% yeah. go to market. This, let's say that become available in the secondary market. That's 10,000, yeah. Kevin. It seems possible that this Black Lotus becomes the most affordable Black Lotus for old school players, but it also seems possible that it's not the most affordable one. And it also seems possible that if it is more affordable, it's only very marginally so. I, Which all those seem very possible. Yeah. I don't know how to weight the likelihoods of each of those outcomes, but the point is that all three of those possibilities are unlikely to put any downward pressure on the the value of the other ones, beca- of the other ones, because the demand is still taut, still taut for the other ones. 
Do you agree I with do. that? I do. And I have heard a similar conclusion from other members of the community as well, that the price point of this one will approach, not necessarily reach, but it will approach the, the other cheapest Lotuses, as you said, and also not negatively affect those other values. Right. Now, just because that's true of Lotus doesn't mean it's true of other, let's say, reserve yeah. list rares. So let's assume... A different case for dual lands. Let's talk about dual lands yeah. for a moment. Because there's inherently yes. twice as many. So dual... Right, inherently twice as many. Do you think that this reprint will put any pr- downward price pressure? This is the, always yeah. the biggest sticking point. Downward price pressure on reserve. Uh, sorry, reverse. Revised. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say that again. Do you think it will put any downward pressure on revised edition dual lands? I think any. Even as a binary answer, yes, I believe that it will. I, I think a, a pretty small amount. And as we've discussed in the past, I also think they will recover over time, right? Uh, but that's not really what you're asking. And by the way, that assumes that the, it, I think it assumes mm-hmm. two things. Number one, potentially one of two things. It assumes that the price of the the modern frame 30th edi- anniversary edition dual land is, I guess, less expensive than a revised dual land. I think it will have to be. And therefore becomes a substitute. It have to be less expensive if, it would have to be less expensive for the revised version yeah. to go down in price. It has to be. Because it would that's the only way it alleviates any yeah. of the demand as a substitute. And if it's more expensive, then it can't, right? It and certainly if if the modern frame thirtieth edition version is more exp- is more expensive than a revised edition one, then is it possible it could still put downward price yeah. pressure? I guess it could it's black bordered, so it'll presumably more desirable. Yeah, there's a, one in across terms, the different, except for sanctioning. Uh, it's it's worth pointing out that the the segments that are customers of the duels is significantly different than the Lotus sets that you um, mentioned a minute ago. Yeah, that's why I'm I mean the EDH factor yes. is is enormous. Um, and I think that I'm I'm not an expert economist, so you know I only play one on TV, but. Uh, <laughs> what you just, I think, briefly concluded was that it is, yes, absolutely possible for one of these new tropical islands to cost more on average than a revised one and also for revised ones to get a little cheaper. And I think the reasons are numerous. I think these trops um, have a different aesthetic value proposition than revised ones do. You know, there could be a yes. significant swath of players who prefer these to the originals. Not everyone, I mean, but... If, if that's true, if that's true, Kevin, that does begin to weaken the reserve yes. list. Yes. It really does. And yeah. obviously, we're talking about... Because, let me be clear, it weakens it because it provides a substitute for players... A substitute, mm-hmm. a viable substitute for players who are not principally concerned with tournaments and therefore frees up more yes. quantity for Yes, so players. imagine... Yes. Yeah, so take that into account when you consider what happens as you flood the market with these. And I'm using flood as an ext- as an extreme <laughs> example. But as, as we said earlier, like, uh, you know, a 10,000-fold, a, a not fold, a 10,000-count increase in black lotuses, I would argue, constitutes flooding a market with lotuses, right? Like, 10,000 is a lot of lotuses. And 20,000, yes. or maybe, who knows, 200,000 is a lot of tropical islands in practice. And imagine if yes, there's a you know a, a 38th edition, <laughs> you know a 38th anniversary thing uh, that that has also has double dual lands in it. it. It doesn't take much as a policy. I mean, it, it's a very simple model. I would argue lots of effort involved in the, the marketing and everything and the pricing. But as a model, it's not hard 
to, to force that wedge open. You know, the next time you do it, it has a different art and there are foils and you can charge less, you can charge more. And, but all the way you're chipping away at that value proposition. Now, how many players at that eight pod EDH event on Friday night have these duels instead of the revised ones, right? Maybe there's a price point where some of the, you know, the foil tropical island's going to be worth, you know, two to three times as much as the non-foil one. Well, that makes it worth, you know, two or three times a revised one. There are no foils. Not yet. Set so far as we know. Yes, that is correct. I don't want to mis- mislead anyone. I'm just saying that if you think there's not going to be foil black lotuses on the market in a year or two, I think you're fooling yourself, right? All right. Well, we want to take a uh, I'm not going to, I'm not a gambling <laughs> person any more than opening booster packs. Like okay. I, I only buy singles I, I anymore. Think a year or two. I- <laughs> A year or two is a little bit. A, a year or two might be too aggressive. I think they probably have a higher priority on introducing uh, Bazaar of Baghdad and Tabernacle because those are some of the most expensive yeah. EDH cards. Um, so I think you're right. Like I don't think we get Black Foil Lotus next year, but you have to believe that they have a whiteboard full or had one two years ago or whatever full of all the ways they can introduce dual lands and lotuses into the world. Right, all the form factors. You know what I want most from this entire set is that damn wasp token. <laughs> the, I have got I good news most. for you. You will be able to acquire that wasp token, and, and not for too much money. Yes, I have. A, I feel. I yeah, feel confident you're in. About you're that. in an Maybe incredibly like narrow spot. market yeah. for that one. Um, <laughs> I, I just. Okay. I, I I think so. I think that it, you. What you're saying is very speculative, and I don't. I, you know, it's hard. It's fine. We're, we're speculating, but I feel really um, strongly about this. This is a wedge. Okay. Well, you're on you're yeah. on the record. I think I think it's indirectly weakening the reserve list, but I see nothing here that Well, no, it can't be. It. it must be. Um, I think your your point is really interesting. I think your point is really interesting about the possibility of of look, I don't think Wizards thought that IE or CE cards would end up being played in No. I agree. You know, they, they, I think it's very possible <clears throat> to print cards with one intention and then mm-hmm. change your mind. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's fine. That's fine. It's interesting that that may not violate the reserve list. I, well, I think lawyers would have a field I, day with that. But I think it's an in, it's at least an yeah. argument. And it's at least an argument. Oh, it's the your, most I'll say for it. Your I think questions about how these dual lands stack up against revised ones are I I have a really high degree of confidence that that was a factor in this product strongly. Like. Black yes. Lotus is great from a collectability standpoint. And yeah, you put it in all your marketing materials and you put it on the box, which they did here. But dual lands are where the money's at. Dual lands and EDH being your most um, popular format and dual lands being a, a, you know a, just a central part of the, the impact of the reserve list on that format. That's actually, there's a reason why they doubled the dual lands specifically, right? You notice there's not twice as many Lotuses here. There's twice as many Volcanic Islands, right? That was on purpose. Yes. You notice that the only other card they adjusted is the most popular card in, in EDH, Sol, in Sol Ring. Sol Ring. Yeah, like yeah. all the signs are there. Yeah. They know what they're doing with this and it's not ending here. Well, they had to, I think, so we didn't spend a lot of time mm-hmm. talking about this, but I did make the point that once you've made the two preliminary decisions, that we are going to make a 30th anniversary product and the product is going to be an emulation of mm-hmm. limited edition. Then you have to begin to figure out how to fix the f- biggest flaws in the set. Mm-hmm. The biggest flaws in the set are in no particular order. There are too many basic lands in each booster <laughs> yep. pack. Number two, easily fixed. That, yeah, easily fixed, which they did. Number two, that there's too many terrible cards. It, especially mm-hmm. at rare and common, which is, and, and then number three, um, you want to make sure that people get enough value. 
mm-hmm. out of it. So I think the doubling of the, the two most obvious things they did was they made Soul Ring common and they doubled the dual lands. And they also added a, essentially in three, 30% of the packs yep. a second rare, which means that when you buy a, a display box, <laughs> yeah. the, the display, you're getting at least five rares. On average, yeah. At least. Well, no, on average, you're going to get five and well, a half rares, right? I mean, I guess my point was you're not guaranteed to get five rares. Some of these boxes will have only four rares. That will be incredibly <laughs> devastating. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it depends on what those rares are, but yes, yeah. that'll be a real bummer. A below average yeah, box. Yeah, I suppose it's also possible then that you could also have a box that has yeah, eight Yeah, absolutely. Rares. There are, there will be eight rare sure. boxes. Very so, rare. But it'll be, it'll be five to six rares yeah. Yeah. on average, right? So... The point the point I'm making is that what they did to compensate is they did three things. They restricted the basic lands to two per two, sorry, three per pack because one of them is in the retro yep. frame. So there's three basic lands. But those per don't come pack. at the expense of other better cards, which is the important part. Yeah. Right. Yes, they they made Sol Ring a common number 2 and number 3 they doubled the number of dual lands mm-hmm. on the rare sheet, which means that each I mean, I don't know, probably if you buy two of these packs you're probably going to get a dual land. At um, least <laughs> somewhere, I don't know. That might be a little yeah, bit I would, high. Yeah, I would think that would be within I mean, they've the also window, yeah. decreased. They've also decreased the number of rares because they've taken out three rares out of the set. Four. Crusade yeah. has been removed. And the three, there's a hundred and... Oh, I should know this <laughs> off the top of my head. There's a hundred and some rares in limited edition. So so I, I'm not sorry, I'm not looking it up. Do you want me no, to look at it? Right. Hold don't on, I can tell it. you. Okay. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's... There's a there's like basically I'm this is off the top of my head. It's like 120 rares and yeah. limited edition, uh, like like what is it? 80 common uncommons and then like 60 commons or something like that. Um, unique. I'm way <laughs> off and I should know this by heart, but it's roughly in the those ranges. Um, and a lot of the rares are just god awful. I mean, you don't want to get laces. You don't want to uh, get I don't know <laughs> some of these terrible yeah, artifacts. Right. I mean, a lot of people would balk at the the hive, even though it's a, a personal favorite of us. Oh. But you got your your helm of Chatsook, right? Your Dingus egg, yes, your Clockwork Beast, Jade yeah. Monolith, yeah, uh, Jade Monolith, yeah, Jade Monolith is rare, yeah. And not, and not also, it's worth pointing out that <laughs> some people are going to be super excited about opening something like a Cyclopean Tomb, but the sure I have yeah, an alpha one of those, but the I vast majority yeah. of people are not. <laughs> That card is not good. No, it's only situationally very, very niche in one format. The rares, I mean, we covered this, but the rares were designed to be... Specialized. Narrow yeah. and lots of... Yes, but like Farmstead is a horrible <laughs> card. <laughs> yeah. Just an atrocious card. Remember how different it was yeah. in the original formulation? Anyway, um, the point I'm making is that... The point I'm trying to make is what? What is my point? My point is that... Um, the rarity, the the way in which they design these packs, I think, nicely compensates for the inherent flaws in limited edition booster packs. Now, I don't know if they did enough, but it, I think those tweaks cumulatively could be quite significant. Yeah. Because basically, it could be that, I, I think basically every box is now going to have a soul ring. I would not be surprised if it's done that Oh, interesting. Way. That might be true, yeah. Because, I can't prove it, but that might be true. Just because, because there's seven commons in each pack plus a possibility of a common in the retro in the retro spot which means that there's that's eight times four that's 36 that's 32 commons not all unique 
I think you probably have a better than 50% chance. And it's, oh, by the way, Soul Ring is also in the yeah. uncommon slot. <laughs> There's yep. three uncommons. So I think you probably have a better than 50% chance of getting a Soul Ring in each of these things. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. by design. They want to make sure that you don't get, you at least get something exciting. I could be wrong about that, but that's what I think. Well, I, think I think you're right. I think that's, I think that's a reasonable interpretation of their goal. And I'm, I'm comfortable citing that they considered what the experience would be like for EDH players opening this. Not that it will be commonly done, yes. but I think they strongly considered it. So let's move to the aesthetics yeah. and then wrap with some final yeah. thoughts, Kevin. Um, where do you want to start on the aesthetics? We, I think we should start by talking about the fact that there's a, a mixture of modern and retro frames here. But, and, and you know, everyone has their own opinion on both of those, and, and I, we can talk about it. But I also want to... Rich Shea has a very interesting <laughs> yeah. opinion on that. Well, and Go I want to yeah. uh, refer back to something you said right at the top when we were talking about the first couple sentences, and that is the retro frames for most of these cards... Um, they're not as retro as they could have been, is what I would say. <laughs> they no, look—they don't not. look like beta at all. No one, no one who's conversant all. with beta would be confused by that. They look like fourth edition cards. Yeah. To your point, fifth edition maybe. Yes. But the, yeah, fourth edition is probably the best point of comparison. If you think about the the basic lands, for example, they look like FBBs. They look like foreign black border lands that players like and play a lot of. And if you're really into that aesthetic and you want some in English, well, this is the first time you're going to really be able to get that. The dual lands, I think, especially stand out for me. And the reason is, is that they did not fully retro the frames. They still have the Magic Online style gradient from left to right, which is not the beta aesthetic. It's jarring. With the the faux spiral uh, concentric boxes. And for me... And I know, I'm guessing for a lot of people, that really kills it. Because if I were to open, and yes. I'm not going to, but if I were to open a, a quote-unquote retro volcanic island out of this, I do not feel, that does not feel like a retro card to me. That feels like a, this is a, you printed something for Magic Online. <laughs> and so, aesthetically, there are lots of great choices here, and I, I support a lot of them, but it's still kind of just a miss for me in general. Even the retro frames, it's still yeah. a miss. That's a really good point. The, the color, the, the pattern yeah. scheme that's usually in the text box with the dual lands is missing. That is a critical frame. part of the aesthetic it, of original duels for me. I agree. And just this weird gradient does not yeah. capture that. Okay. I wanted to point out a couple of other different things. I'm glad mm-hmm. you pointed out those. Um, did you notice the common soul ring is different than the uncommon yes. soul ring? Yes. They have a, a differently cropped, zoomed the, in version of the soul ring. Yes. It's it's really very jarring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really odd. It's and, you know, I imagine looking. some people are probably going to love it. And I imagine that lots of old timers yeah. like us are, are going to say no thanks. Yes, I will throw that away <laughs> instantly. But it is it is useful to distinguish the uncommon from the common. So I understand. Yeah. And also, you know, people like variety. Um, it's, it's just it's like a kind of a secret layer soul ring of a sort. And I imagine some people are going to seek you know it out. What also, you know what one of the most important cards mm. in this set is? It's going to be Chaos Orb for old yeah, players. Yeah, it's a good-looking Chaos Orb. Because Chaos Orb is not legal in any mm-hmm. almost anything this else. This is a great source so. of Chaos Orb. And a few other super niche cards that really only see play in old school anymore. And uh, I was, you know, Cyclopean Tomb is kind of adjacent to that. But give me give me another one that's really only in old school. Well, the Hive, for example. The Well, the Hive is more of an uh, alpha card. Yeah. Alpha card. But, and, and Jade Statue. But on, I'll give you, I mean, Disrupting Scepter 
in JM Day Tome are heavily go. played there you go. in old school. And they look really How about nice some other so those niche are things like Ankh of Mishra, right? Like, that's a pretty Definitely. one. Definitely. Yeah, Icy Manipulator is, is, is you play. Um, ha, uh, Illusionary Mask in old school 90, 96. Yeah, that's a good one. Is quite Let's good. talk about Illusionary Mask for a moment because... <laughs> because <laughs> it's got yeah, the this is this is oh, so one of the things I do re- enjoy about this set is the updated printings and updated language of the mystifiers, right? Like you and I laughed yep. and laughed and laughed about some specific cards um in our alpha review, illusionary mask, raging river, camouflage, uh give me another one. Um uh even something as simple as like clone and there's just a raft of, of cards in this set if you really dig down into it. Time Vault. Time Vault's uh, the one I was thinking of. Yes. This is a fun way to get a novel, modernized version of these cards that are ridiculous. And in some cases, you, you just got to read Camouflage. I'm not even going to do it right now. It would take too long. Cam- the, the wording on Camouflage, seeing it in print, is, I would argue, fun and novel. And there are some cards that the community knows very well, like, say, Berserk. Or channel, right? Cards that people play. Fast Bond, for example. Where just seeing the modern template in print has some novelty to it. There are going to be some people out there who just really enjoy a retro framed Fast Bond with a, with, you know, with a modern language. And there are several EDH players who are really going to gravitate towards uh, maybe uh, this Birds of Paradise or Land of War Elves, for example. You know, just... Like, I don't have beta Lana War Elves. Here's an interesting one that I like the retro style of, and I can get it for much less than a beta Lana War Elves. I like the ways in which this recapitulates some things that we haven't seen in ages in a different context. Yeah, it's cool. The the, the cards and also the, we'll see, we'll have to see what they actually look like, but the coloring looks really rich, especially in the retro frame. Yeah. Um, yeah, like so, the certain we'll cards that we've talked I've, about at length, like the your icy manipulators and your your red elemental blasts, right? We've definitely got coloration that's more akin to alpha here than we, and I would never have expected anything else, right? There's no way they were going to print right. reb with the true beta style coloring. Yeah. Yep. I like. I mean, the the beta style coloring on the number of cards that were corrected from alpha mm-hmm. is much darker, like uh, mana short. REB, you know, a number of other cards. I see Manipulator. Um, I really... I think that's pretty much it on aesthetics. I mean, I think overall the aesthetics are what they could do. I think it's good that they have... A, I mean, they could have just decided to make all the cards in the retro mm-hmm. art. That was a choice they could have made, and I would support that choice. But I also understand it is kind of it is kind of cool and weird to see these older cards on new frames. Like the Chaos Orb in the new frame is really weird. And kind of, kind of yeah. cool, actually. Demonic Hordes so. is another one. Demonic Hordes looks weird in a new frame to me. That card <laughs> should only, I think, only exist in its original form, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, Lich is a fun one. So Lich yeah, and Gaia's Liege are two examples of cards that, when we reviewed them in Alpha, um, you know, I think you learned for the first time <laughs> during our Alpha review that w- if you resolve Lich in during Alpha, it just immediately causes you to lose the game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and ditto Gaia's liege, you know, taken to the, the written word in alpha, as soon as it resolves, it just goes to the graveyard as a state-based action because it has zero, zero. Like, those are c- funny examples of ones that it's kind of nice to have a functional version in print. 
And I mean, Lich is played in EDH. It's very narrow, right? And it's it's really only masochists oh. that like to do it. But it's it's an EDH card, and having one that actually you can read and and suss out at the table for people who've never played before, there's some value in that. It's also legal. Yeah, legacy. true, true. So, well, this is an interesting yeah. experiment with many profound implications, and I do think. I don't think this is a violation of the reserve list, but I do think it is a potential weakening of mm-hmm. it indirectly. And I think it's a very interesting point about what it means, what it portends, both as precedent in terms of printing more cards like this and in terms of building on it and then the dangers in terms of the integrity of the game in which it was discussed. I don't think this is inherently exploited, but I don't think this was yeah. optimal. I think Wizards could have gotten as much profit. I mean, I can't prove this because I don't know what the cost curves look like. And the marginal cost would have been higher, but I imagine they could have probably gotten as much profit with two very different approaches. One would be just selling $1,000 a box set of this. That would have sold like gangbusters, yeah, Kevin. No kidding. Absolutely. I think you probably, pretty, you probably could have sold more and had almost as much profit, if not more profit, because... Obviously, it's a lot more cards to put into a box, so the marginal cost is a little higher. But I also think they could have probably done it in a way, <laughs> again, if the goal is just profit, um, for shareholders, had a slightly l- less expensive product with a larger print run. Yeah. And you have can still have a very high marginal revenue and therefore huge profits, but you'd have more revenue, I think, overall, and therefore more profit yeah. but they didn't want to do that i mean i think it's it's hard to predict what would have happened in other scenarios we know this is going to sell through but you know it just seems to me if you can sell more widgets why wouldn't you want to sell more the community so. would have embraced 30th anniversary collector's edition as a as a as a set the community yes. would have embraced that so much better yeah that's what they should have done that's really what i think they should have done well, is there anything else you want to say? I think we need to wrap here. I, I have a summary, and that is that I am completely internally divided on this product. I love this product, and I hate it. I hate it for the <laughs> price point. This is not a celebration of magic for the players. This is a, this is a, a collector's-only product priced way too high. The value is simultaneously awful and it's going to sell out and be worth two to three times as much in a number of years. I don't know how many years. It's going to be an incredible speculator product. And I hate that. I don't want a product like that. I love this product because it is evocative of limited edition for me. I love these cards. I wouldn't have made all the aesthetic choices, but I, I'm not going to rail against that. I mean, this, this is, like it or not, putting more Black Lotuses in Dual Lands and, and, and things like Drew Tucker's art on plateau in people's hands, which I should have said before. They somehow managed to, I think, according to uh, original magic art on Twitter, the, the running theory is that the original art for plateau was located, which we know to be true. But the theory is that it was rescanned to be reprinted. That's an amazing thing. I love, I love that aspect wow. of this product. I, I do want players to have access to these cards. And the thing I like about it most is that I strongly believe this is another step toward the sidestepping of the reserved list. I gen- I believe that in okay. my in my core, and I think it's going to take us a while to get there. And if that manifests it, then I love this product. Yeah. Time will tell, Captain. I said on Twitter, tell. 
I, I said on I, Twitter that I believe this is a meta product. I don't actually believe this product is for anyone. I, I legitimately believe this. I think this is a very strategic play on their part. Yeah, they can market it as a celebration, and yeah, they're going to make their millions of dollars or whatever for selling through. But the purpose of this product is to have existed so that they can make the next one. And I'm worried about the ways that that will impact price of products, and I'm worried about the way that it'll be exploitative. But also, if it really does lead to the sidestep of the reserved list five or ten or more years from now, I want that to happen. I don't think this is the only way to have done it, but if it accomplishes that goal, there is some implicit value. Well said. I am skeptical of much Mm -hmm. of what you've said, but I would be happily proven wrong if what you said manifests. On the other side of the coin, the thing that makes me angriest about this is not actually the price. What makes me angriest about this is the limited print run. I just can't stand a product where people are going to log in Mm. that morning and not be able to get it because they logged in five minutes Mm -hmm. too late or because speculators got all the product. I just, I I hate that. And I realize that that's more buzz for wizards. And if they sell through, they sell through. But I actually wouldn't mind an expensive product if it was more widely available in the sense of supply. And I realize supply and demand are related and they wanted to, they restricted the supply in order to justify Mm -hmm. the price. (laughs) You know, that's the monopolist pricing tactic. But that actually makes me (laughs) angrier. I I have to say, I'm not actually angry about the price. i disappointed is the emotion. Disappointed. But I'm actually angry about the limited edition. And I'm angry about the lack of details about it. Someone said, I think, that that some retail shops are going to get one or more of these. They're giving away to to a very small quantity to LGSs. One copy to to the lower tier stores and three copies to the higher tier stores. And that wasn't in the announcement. Not in the printed one. It was on the video announcement on the live stream. Okay. So again, that's irritating to me. That's just irritating. I I just, that makes me angrier (laughs) than the price. And because I'm not angry about the price point, I'm disappointed, but I'm actually angry about the limited supply issue because wanting a Nintendo mini classic is one of the most frustrating experiences of my adult existence. Would you describe yourself though as bullish or bearish on what this portends for increased availability of this type of card in the future? It has to be positive. I think this actually is a positive development mm-hmm. overall because it will it can only enhance the possibility of weakening the reserve list. So I think overall I'm happy that this product exists, even though I'm disappointed in the deci- some of the decisions they made regarding yeah. it. Well said. All right. Well thank you everyone for bearing with us <laughs> through a long discussion. Hopefully you have lots of thoughts if you want to share them with us. Yeah. Tweet us. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 108 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays. Email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed our show, please sure, be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.